And welcome to the Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast that is actually stupider than a cow. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher, and I gotta tell you, the sauce is of the utmost importance. I'm Mike Bloom, and I'm still waiting to dog some guy on national TV. I'm Paul Osselson, and I can't wait to spend time with a psychotic Greg, Speedball, and Jarvis, the pervert. <laughs> And welcome back to our continuing coverage of Survivor Borneo, the Ridge, the OG here. And uh, I just want to say welcome back, you guys. Are you guys ready to delve back into the long-ago world of 2000? I mean, you've really taken me out. I, I had a lot of plans this evening. I had a lot of places to go, but uh, I'm here instead, so. I am craving an ice cream bar and a jump on the trampoline. Oh, we're <laughs> almost there. You're taking off your shoes, Paul. You're unwrapping the bar. Like, you're almost there at the moment when Paul Osselson discovered Survivor and the world was changed. I, I, really can't ta- I really can't take my shoes off on the trampoline for too long, though, because I'm allergic to an ingredient in rubber, so my feet will break out. So the shoes will stay on for that. How many ingredients <laughs> are in rubber? Well, it's called, like, <laughs> it's called like Mekeptomix or Mesoptomix. I don't know exactly how you pronounce it, but, like, I can't wear flip-flops. Oh, or, come on, German. Um, it's Mesomix. And- <laughs> Yeah, I made some mix. There you go. Um, anyway, the side note about me. Yeah, I can't like I can't use a mouse pad. Um, my hand will break out with that. So, oh no, Paul! Uh, how do you live in 2020 without the ability to use a mouse pad? <laughs> I know it's really. How, how it's else rough. will you Zoom meeting? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back to Mario's question. I'm excited. <laughs> Paul, I love when you give me new stuff to make fun of you about. Thank you. Good. <laughs> Now, okay, to, for our listeners, when we were starting to do this Borneo podcast, I, I forget if it was Mike or Jay said, oh, we can bring up Paul's trampoline story again, because apparently that was something that we talked about before. I have no recollection of the story. So when you say it the second time, it'll be all new for me. So I'm very excited to hear the story. Well, good. It's weird. Since you you, know, you listen to Historians podcasts all the time, I'm surprised you don't remember the story. <laughs> I, I have no clue, thing. but it sounds amazing. I think my favorite thing about Mario is like he's instantly forgot almost everything he's ever like put out ever uh-huh. except for his survivor fan fiction. But like everything else, he's like, yeah, I did a thing. I don't know what I said. I don't know what I wrote. I don't know what I did, <laughs> but I know what happened in survivor Greece. I don't know. I mean, I think it, it puts you on the same level as a listener, right? Cause you're discovering things along with them. It only it's the things that you actually said and wrote. I am. It's, it's like the movie Memento. Every time we do an episode, it's brand new for me. It's very exciting. Well, what I am, I am glad though that we can bounce it off, and I can tell kids or stories from my childhood when I was ten years old watching Survivor, and that way you can. Some of the uh, people in this podcast who are a little bit older than the rest of us can talk a little bit more about the controversies that come up, you know, off off camera for this, because I think you guys might be better um, storytellers 
about no, what Paul, happened with all that. You mean that you and I, as 10-year-olds at the time, were not reading into the Stacey Stillman deposition files that were being released? No, I wasn't. What I, what I marked down, too, which is so interesting to me, because I've, I watch... Um, I've I've told these stories before with my Survivor origin stories. You know, like during my middle school years, Survivor of moving what? into high Clarify school. That. Say that clearer. Survivor what stories? What did I call them? Survivor what? Jay thought you said Survivor orgy stories. Or origin oh, or, stories. Okay, origin yeah, okay. origin stories. I marked down like like I, I noticed there's so many phrases and words I learned thanks to Survivor, and like I wrote down in in this section of of episodes we watched before this podcast was, um, Sean taught me what a bowel movement was. I had never heard that terminology before. Um, surf and turf was also something I learned thanks to Survivor Borneo. So it's always funny to me to go back and realize that I remember being a ten year old and not fully understanding some of this language, but then learning uh, through my rewatches and asking my mom, "What's a bowel movement?" <laughs> It's a special moment when you get to ask your mother that on a, on the same level as her. I hope that wasn't too soon after you went on the trampoline, because otherwise she would have had some very different <laughs> ideas. God damn it, we need a new trampoline. <laughs> no more ice cream sandwiches. We should yeah. also mention right at the top here, something we forgot to mention. Uh, there was a reward challenge that took place in episode two that wasn't released on the show that Pagong won. Yeah, but the, the, I have a couple things I wanted to bring up before we get to the episode. So are we done with the frivolity, ready to move into the serious stuff? I mean, this I'll is shut still up for about 30 minutes. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, let's get to the serious topics. On mute. Yeah. <laughs> the first one being, what the fuck, Paul? Can you even wear a condom? <laughs> um, latex is fine. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Just had to d- drop that in there. Okay. <laughs> so the serious stuff in this, uh, before we get to uh, the, the episodes here. So we left off with episode two, the BB episode. And I'd argue that really nothing all that important has happened in the season. The big stuff is going to happen in these episodes. But I do have three things I would like to bring up that we kind of glossed over in the first one. First one is what Mike just brought up, that there was indeed a reward challenge between, I believe, was it Richard and Joel? Mm-hmm. Is that how it, it went? Yeah, it was basically the challenge that uh, Colby and He Who Must Not Be Named did in Survivor Australia, which is just carry as much weight as possible on your back. And I think the winner got a map to the water well, is I believe that was the reward. <laughs> well, Which, no, so, the, the, according to BB and Ramona, to, they already had. Yeah, I think the mosquito nets were part of that because don't doesn't Pagong choose to bring over the mosquito nets at the merge? And I don't know where else they would have. I think I, I thought, I don't know, maybe I'm making that up. In any case, there was a challenge that did not air in the episode, so that's one thing in history we kind of forgot about. That I believe it was in episode two, and it did happen. I just never saw it. So that's one thing we skipped over in the first podcast. Uh, the second thing I wanted to bring up is that we talked about Mark Burnett, you know, his amazing contribution to the show, how he brought it over from Europe, made it into an American show. But we completely forgot to mention the other producer. And this is something that a lot of people tend to do when they talk about Survivor history. They forget about this other guy, and that's Charlie Parsons. Mm -hmm. So who wants to give a little history of Charlie Parsons? Because I'm not entirely sure. I don't know all that much about him. I just know he's the shadowy, lurking other figure aside Mark Burnett. Paul, I know you know this stuff. Well, I actually don't know. I, I don't. Is he talked about in the book at all, Mike? I know you've no, been. No, uh, they take. They actually, he talks more about uh, Craig Polygian, who is more right. like his co-EP, who's sort of like more of the boots on the ground. Uh, yeah. Charlie, Par- yeah, Charlie Parsons is a British television producer, so he was known for a lot of work 
over there. And I guess he, uh, I don't know, uh, Survivor is a merger of many, many different internationalities, uh, especially nowadays. So I guess we started things off here with, you know, a British TV producer and an Australian TV producer working together to create an American TV show. Yeah, but I do know Charlie Parson was very hands-on. Like, he was on site, and he was very much an equal to Mark Burnett at the time. I'm just... I'm just, this is just a, uh, something I've heard over the years. I don't know this for a fact. People used to describe them as Mark Burnett was the good cop and Charlie Parsons was the bad cop. And the players didn't like dealing with Parsons because he was kind of a jerk. And Burnett was like the very encouraging one. So that was the – there were two of them. It wasn't just a Mark Burnett thing. That's just what I wanted to get across. Yeah, I've not yeah. encountered any Charlie Parsons mentioned in the book so far. But again, as I said in the first episode, this is from the perspective of Mark Burnett. So perhaps it might be happening for a reason. <laughs> Okay, and the third thing that we neglected to talk about, and I got some feedback on our first podcast. Some people were complaining because they said, some of you historians kept using a word to describe Borneo, and it's not accurate. And this will become very important here in this part two of the podcast. Apparently, we, a couple of us kept mentioning Borneo and calling it a game show. And this is very tricky uh, uh, nomenclature here because it is not a game show, is it? Right. Yes. <laughs> the, the the lawsuit. Yes, absolutely. But but it is right. Like it, it, I, I, I refuse to apologize for that because, you know, now now we're getting into technical nomenclatures when we get into uh, game shows and all of that other things to deal with with the with the things. But at, at the end of the day, this is a game show. I'm sorry, but it is technically not apparently. Yeah, it's and well, this is a debate that rages to this day on Survivor message boards. And I don't know if all our listeners know this, that this is a very heated debate if the producers are allowed to influence the game. Mm. And again, we will get into this with episode three. It becomes very, a very big deal. But I've had a couple insiders over the years that have explained this to me that said the first season was indeed classified as a game show. And anything the producers were doing was very much illegal based on game show rules, game show laws, and the contract was very quickly restructured and written very specifically, so it's no longer considered a game show. So it's a very fine line with what it actually is, and depending on which season you are in, how much the producers were really not doing correct things. And, of course, we will get more into that. I just want to clarify, because a couple of people brought that up to me. They're like, you guys kept calling it a game show. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know. It's an old habit. But it is become it, it will become very important to delineate between the two things once we get going. Yeah, you're chumming right. the waters right now for the, the fish to bite. But we're trying not to do it in the Dr. Sean way, where we don't catch anything. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Okay. It, it's, it's tough. Okay. We're going to get into the whole thing with game shows and game show rules and this, that, and and whatnot when we get into well i mean are we getting in episode three because because let's go <laughs> okay we will go into episode three but because i know it annoys jay i have one more thing let's delay the start even further mute just, be <laughs> just how did colleen do in her return on uh your survivor fanfic oh yeah how'd she do she did fairly well, Paul. I know you're very excited to talk about this. Colleen got to the final four in one version of my Hawaii story and then did not do well so well the second time when I rewrote it. So mm. thank you. Very important to document this. All I remember about your second version of your Hawaii story was Gretchen wrecking her body in an endurance challenge so that she was a dead man walking the next week and had and couldn't win anyway. Yeah. Yeah, Jay can tell you all about that. If you guys want to hear more, write to jfisher at gmail.com. That's not a written email. <laughs> that, that's 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 like not even my email. So absolutely, 
I was Go trying ahead. to spare you, Jay. Okay, no. The thing I wanted to talk about that's serious is the ratings, the viewer number of viewers for this show. I looked it up because I think people might find this interesting. Now, it, it, the, the finale of Survivor is often called one of the biggest TV events in history. Mm-hmm. And there are other big TV events in history, like the Cheers finale, the Friends finale. The there finale. Were, these were, yeah, Mash finale. These were big events. But the argument is those were the culmination of an entire decade of TV. So everyone was turning, tuning into the finale. The Survivor finale built up a most amazing amount of viewers in one season. I don't know if we're ever going to see this in our lifetimes again. Episode one of Survivor had 15.5 million viewers. Episode two had 18 million viewers. Episode three had 23. They've already got up 8 million viewers just in two episodes from one to three. And it just steadily increases from there. 23 to 24 to 25 to 26 to 28. We have 28 million viewers by episode 11. So they've already doubled their viewership already by the 11th episode. And then we double it again to get to the finale where you go 51.69 million people watch the finale. So we more than triple our viewers for the show over 13 weeks. And it was not small to start with. It was already 15 and they already tripled that in 13 weeks. And I cannot think of another show that will ever do that in anybody's lifetime over one season. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like, we talked about this last time that the show was relegated to a summer slot, which ordinarily is sort of like the seasonal version of the Friday night death slot of like, well, people are out, they're going on vacation, they're not watching TV, but it almost ended up having the inverse effect, right? Where that was the summer of the Olympics, but also there was very little competition in terms of scripted television, especially in this realm, that it really was this unicorn, especially on primetime television. So that uniqueness and the time that it aired actually ended up being one of Survivor's biggest successes. I do find it a bit weird that we never ended up going back to that after it, but they, I guess they figured that it was just a strong enough show that they could just keep it on with the regular shows during the spring and fall. Yeah, and by season two, I mean, they're flat out saying, we're going to take on Friends. Like, they're so confident after that first season. They're like, we're going to see this number one show on TV. We're going to go directly opposite them because screw them. So that's like, this is the definition of a, you know, phenomenon. I, again, this is the biggest show, probably the most important show I will ever see in my lifetime just over one season. That's the one thing I want to get across to people because they're going to ask, was this show a hit by episode three? You're damn right it was. And it was yeah. going to get bigger even by the later it was absolutely a hit. And what's funny is that we can actually talk about this in retrospect, and we're not necessarily experts in this field. Like, I guess maybe Mike is because of, you know, what he does now and and, and things. But you know what the concept of, like, weekly ratings and weekly television shows is, like, almost like a relic of the past? Oh, it is. Now, right? Like, now you know, we have things that are streaming and, and, and seasons that come out on, on streaming devices like Netflix and, and other streaming devices are available, but like they all, all the episodes come out at once or, you know, they have things that come out over time. And, and I think just even with that and the oversaturation of channels, you know, has, has taken it to another sort of level where, you know, Back in the day, the major networks, they always had these ratings battles and like people lived and died on what a show got from week to week, right? It wasn't even just like, what's your average ratings or what's your this? It's like, you know, if a, if a show gets this rating this week, they expect that or better almost next week. And they, they, they pit every, like their whole schedules and everyone's futures with this weekly ratings, which is so like not really a thing anymore. Like it is and it isn't, right? But 
it, it's such a it's such a majorly weird relicy kind of thing to talk about, which is television ratings. Yeah, well, I think it's also because this is still the time when there was appointment television, to be quite honest. And, and I feel like today that has significantly gone down. Like we do still have within our respective fan communities, those ideas, you know, survivor live tweeting still exists. We've all been a part of it, but I feel like because the convenience of watching shows not live between, you know, being able to record them or watching them on streaming or watching them the next day via whatever app you use that disincentivizes you from being like, I need to stop everything I'm doing and watch this show right now. And so it's going to become a little tougher to track. Like they have not to get too granular into the ratings of it all. You know, they do have now like the ratings plus seven or like the ratings plus seven plus DVR, but Honestly, and maybe, you know, hopefully I'm not jinxing any, anything, but personally, when people, you know, really compare, like, oh, how did each Survivor episode do in terms of ratings, I honestly do not feel like that means basically anything anymore. I think especially with a show like Survivor that is so long in the tooth and has really established itself as, you know, a wholehearted commodity for the network, it's going to be one of those things, much like a lot of these other shows that we've seen that will go out on its own terms if and yeah. when that happens, but it's not going to be indicative of how many millions of people happen to be watching it live in that one hour. Yeah, it, it's 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 morphed into a, a different thing, and and ratings are different now, and and ratings, e- even ratings that you look at now, are less than they were in the past, and that's due to more platforms, more shows, more channels, more like lots of lots of different reasons, right? And you know, there were people that you know kind of you know, we're in a way sort of like, and I, and I think I included myself at some point was like, you know, survivors getting a little long in the tooth. Maybe it just goes away. Maybe it just gets to a product where it doesn't get good ratings anymore, but that's not really a thing. You know, their ratings aren't what they used to be, but no one's ratings are what they used to be. And when you look at survivors ratings today, the modern day of survivor, they get a steady amount of people. And it's a good amount of people that watch the show. Like, is it going to be the cultural phenomenon that it was during survivor borneo no but it has its niche market it has its established market it has its established numbers it's not going anywhere until they want it to go somewhere yeah the the, but the main thing i want to get across to people is that yes this was a huge deal this like you should not compare borneo to like survivor edge of extinction you should compare borneo to the super bowl that year Mm -hmm. like that's how big a deal it was survivor made the time cover you know what i mean like Come on. Yeah, and I, I've seen people, some more modern fans, watching old clips, old early show footage, old uh, you know talk show segments from two thousand. Paul. <laughs> Paul, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but but they're amazed. These modern Survivor fans watch these old interview shows, and they're like, "Wow, Survivor was everywhere!" Like even shows that weren't about Survivor would talk about Survivor. And I'm like, "Yeah, that's what it was like." It you cannot compare season one to season forty. It was a completely different thing. I mean, I would say, like, in terms of comparisons, I mean, look at sort of, like, the shows that trend today, mainly, like, those Netflix shows that are really, like, really, you know, spoofed on all these different shows and, like, have proliferated all forms of communication. Just imagine that more sort of siloed and done for three months instead of three days, considering how things, how quickly things move nowadays. And that sort of explains the effect that Survivor had. I would say the only, the closest thing that was matched to that was probably the first season of American Idol. That was, yeah. and, and then subsequently, like, the next couple of seasons. And it also experienced a very similar effect of Survivor. And 
much like you said, Mario, that uh, after season one, Survivor was like, we're going to beat friends. I remember the years when it was Survivor versus American Idol. Who's the mm-hmm. more, you know, more prevailing reality show? You know, and, and I try to – there is no direct comparison, and so I, I don't necessarily want to make a direct comparison. But as far as, like, that appointment TV thing, I think the closest thing in the past few years that you could, it, like, try to – compared to would be when game of thrones was kind of at its height mm-hmm. you know people would be like oh you gotta watch on sunday and then the next day everyone was like oh my god did you watch game of thrones this is what happened and it's yeah. like we have the internet to kind of amplify some of that but this is on like just a national level of things like survivor happened everyone watched it and then the next day everyone talked about it like it mm-hmm. was a thing and it was a huge thing yeah, I don't think a, peop- a lot of people know this, but in 2000, it would have been the, the September 2000, the Saturday Night Live premiere, Richard Hatch was at one point scheduled to host the season premiere of Saturday Night Live. That is how big the show was, that he is not only <laughs> considered the biggest celebrity for the show at the time, but it was on a competing network that they wanted to hire him. So that's, that's again, we'll never see that again. That was just a no. really big deal. And, and that was the thing, was that Richard Hatch and, and these 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 contestants that were on there, like obviously not all of them had the same marketability, but like, you know, especially people like Colleen and Richard and, and, and these characters that become big and, and, and famous with this survivor. Like that's the whole thing. Like, like, like you were talking about, like other shows would mention survivor. Other things would mention survivor because you're an idiot if you don't, because everyone's talking about it. So if your thing has survivor in it in some way, you're going to draw eyes to it. Like I remember right around when Survivor was showing its finale, or maybe it was the night of the finale. Like, didn't like the cast weren't didn't they do the top ten list on Letterman that night? Yep, absolutely. Or, yeah, you know, and it's like I like Letterman. I liked the Letterman show, and I love the top ten and whatnot. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you I was like an avid Letterman watcher. Like I didn't like say I need to watch Letterman every night, but you're damn sure I watched it that night. And it's like anytime like Richard Hatch was on an episode of Becker, which was like a sitcom with <laughs> Ted oh, Danson, yeah. right? Yep, and he was naked. And, that's, and like, that was the thing as well, is like like we'll start getting into the naked stuff with Richard, but that was like the interesting thing about it is like the shows would take like one or two nuggets about those people. Yes. Right. And it would be it would be Richard being naked it would be uh, them eating the rats. Those were yep. like the main two things that no matter what, if your pop culture commodity did not know a thing about Survivor, you just need to do those two things. You can make as many jokes as you want to about that. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, everyone was glomming onto this thing. And that's the, it's, I, that's why I say Game of Thrones is like an apt comparison because a lot of people were like mentioning Game of Thrones stuff and things. Like if you watch other TV shows, you'll see them like throw in like, a, oh, Game of Thrones, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's not the same and it's not as big. Uh, as the zeitgeist that Survivor was, but it's kind of that same concept where it's like you should mention it because people like it and they they know it and they want to they want to discuss it. They become included. It's a thing to include everything in and to get eyes on your product. Yeah, and I will even uh, to further up on that even one more. Survivor got to the next level even past that because you know Richard Hatch was supposed to host Saturday Night Live. It fell through for a variety of reasons, and Survivor just kept being a big deal, kept being a big deal. And Lorne Michaels on Saturday Night Live famously said they would never do a Survivor parody because it was so hacky and played out by then. 
Like mm-hmm. he had this mention that in an interview. Survivor was so big at the point at a certain point. Now it was taking over other shows. So the other shows would revolt and we cannot talk about it ever. And, and SNL famously never did a Survivor parody ever until years, years later, way past Survivor was in its prime. But it's like that's to the point that it got where now it was considered it was such a big deal. It was considered hacky to talk about it all the time. And with that being said, we are going to go into episode three, which is an incredibly pivotal episode in Survivor history. And just to set the stage for people, we've gone through two episodes. The old people have gone first, Sonia and BB, as the show, you know, nat- naturally probably was going to go. They're going to get one of the weak older people that don't fit in. And that's expected to happen in the third episode because you got Rudy, who's old and doesn't fit in and doesn't really add much athletically. And the... The, the script is going to flip on its head very significantly here. And it was at the time, it was like, wow, that's it really changed the trajectory of the show. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of controversy behind it. But again, this is absolutely Survivor history we're about to talk about right now. And yeah. it's so innocuous. It's so innocuous. Like the episode kind of goes. And yeah, there's some weight with the episode. And, and, and you, you can see the momentum momentous thing that Rudy doesn't get voted off. But mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, there's. It's not like when you watch it, you're like, oh, my God, I can feel the gravity of it or something like that in, in all of these other ways. It's just kind of like, oh, look, Stacy went and Rudy stays and, you know, you kind of just go with the flow. But, oh, the implications are so massive. And it's almost as if like there was lots of lots of things behind the scenes in play here. Yeah, I would make the argument. Uh, I know that when we get to the finale in like 17 hours from now, we'll definitely talk about like how important was the finale? How important was Richard Hatch winning for the future of Survivor's longevity? But I would argue an equally, if not more important episode to Survivor's legacy, honestly, might be this one because Rudy Bosch was such a gigantic part of why Survivor became as popular as it did. And if he goes in episode three instead of episode 13, that is a significantly different way that the show catches fire. Are you suggesting Stacy wouldn't have filled those shoes? I mean, I don't know. I, maybe all the bug-eating heroes out there would have loved her, but I don't know about many others. <laughs> Stacy was very popular with the military viewers. It, I, I mean, hate. you could make a case, Mike, and I think you can make a very good case that Rudy Bosch may be one of the most important contestants that Survivor has ever had, just for the reason of... You know, did he win? No. Did did all these other things happen? No. I mean, Rudy just kind of did Rudy things. But Rudy was, for lack of a better terms, I would I would almost categorize that by the end of this season, people are looking at Rudy as kind of the heart and soul of this season Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Like, you know, Richard, you know, does his winning things and there's Sue and, you know, you've got Colleen and you've got like, uh, you know, stuff going on. But Rudy is the character. I think most of America was very fascinated by Rudy and was rooting for Rudy. And and Rudy was not necessarily the most marketable survivor that comes out of this thing. But I think he was like one of the most lively and cheered for characters in this first season of the show. And I think that the show maybe doesn't reach quite the heights that it does if Rudy is out by episode three. Because Mario just mentioned it. By episode three, people are watching. The The world is watching Survivor. And if Rudy goes, like, not like Rudy's made such a huge, 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 huge impact by episode three. He's had his Richard and not in a homosexual way kind of stuff. But, you know, Rudy's not Rudy yet because he hasn't had the time. And if he goes, we don't get Rudy. And I think that this this show goes a slightly different way. Like, does, does it crash? No, but I think Rudy is very, very pivotal, and this episode sets that up. 
Now, Paul was going to say something. I feel like I'm coaxing a bunny out of a hole here. Paul, what were you going to mention there? I was just going to say, you know, after we talk about what's going to happen with the whole uh, Rudy Stacy thing, just the total like attitude on Rudy just like does this huge switch. And all of a sudden, okay, we like Rudy now. I think even (laughs) in this opening scene where we have, you know, Toggy going to fish and whatnot, like even like this turn is already starting to happen because you have all the the women of Toggy out in the raft and talk complaining about Rudy all the time. And then, but by the end of the, you know, the scene on the raft, it's, oh, Sue's going to vote off Stacy. Like, it's just a very, like, this episode's trying to just totally kind of switch what we know about Rudy so far. <laughs> I think it's very fitting that we're eulogizing Rudy in the Stacy episode. <laughs> well, because again, as Paul said, like, it's it's such, you know, it's one of the more up-in-the-air votes, definitely, of, of the three we've had so far. Also interesting to note, as Toggy sort of gets settled into their own little food routine, the rain jackets are officially here. They yes. are out, and, and some modern fans who are, you know, watching this for the first time might not have realized, like, oh, my God, they're getting sunglasses, they're getting rain jackets. Yes, back in the day, even as, as, as soon as, like, Survivor Amazon, they were, mm-hmm. still, they were still being given those things to help cope with the conditions. Yeah, well, for people who don't know, Season 7 was when Tyler Perry said they should not have rain jackets anymore. He also said they should be stranded mm. with the clothes on their back, specifically the girl <laughs> with no bra. <laughs> give them some Balboas, too. <laughs> yeah okay well to, we're, we're you know bearing the lead a little bit here the the controversy most people should know this already i'm just going to give you the quick version and we'll talk about it rudy was supposed to go home in episode three the allegations the producers talked the toggies into voting out stacy instead stacy found out had a lawsuit there was a huge controversy almost ended the show so that's what we're talking about and you guys ready to get into that here we, we will get into that yes okay so episode three, which, as Jay pointed out, that was a very good observation. I'm glad you mentioned that. This is not an especially strong episode. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's of the first six episodes. I think my favorite are four, the Ramona one, and especially six, the Joel one. Yeah. Those are my two favorites. This is not an especially strong episode. And like Jay said, it's because they kind of rush. They kind of yada yada through all the producer manipulation. <laughs> well, there's that. But but here's the thing. Like Mike, Mike pointed out last podcast, you know, he said that, you know, now that he's an adult, and watching, you know, there's there's a lot of nuance with Toggy, and it's like, yeah, there's a lot of nuance, but it's it's like it's it's tones of white, mm-hmm. you know, or 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 beige, or or taupe, or cream, or you know, some sort of like neutral color that people boringly paint the inside of their house, and it's like, it, it there's nuance there, and there's subtlety in Toggy, but like Pagong is so fun, like they're just more <laughs> fun, and you're like the Ramona episode and the Joel episode are more fun. I wonder why. <laughs> All right. As as Cal would say, touche, yes. <laughs> okay. Now, yeah, it's funny because when this episode aired, and again, the name of this episode is Quest for Food, and this is the episode everyone talked about at the time. Oh, it's everyone trying to get food. Is this is this the rat episode? I think it, it is. is, isn't it? Yeah. It is, absolutely. Yeah. So at the time nobody really cared about Stacey or Rudy. They just talked about the rat stuff. And like the whole first half of this episode is Toggy can't get food. They're fishing. They can't get anything. Pagong is going crazy. They can't get food. So they go out and search for tapioca. And then Sue's gonna search for tapioca. And it's like this entire episode is all about just food. People forget what a big factor that was in these early episodes. One of, the hidden, one of the hidden gems of this too that I always like is kind of opens up and Sue says like, I think it's like day seven. I don't know. I lost track. Like, oh, wow. They're so deep into the game. It's like a week and she's lost track of what day they're on. Must be rough. <laughs> okay. Food. 
I'm going to throw a little shout out here to Stacey Stillman, who I like Stacey. I think she's funny. She was not especially popular at the time. I didn't like her at the time, but she has some great quotes. And there's one that I quote to this day from this episode. And I always forget it's a Stacey quote where she says, you know, Sue, Sue is very cagey. Sue is kind of the leader of the Toggies and Sue wants to get rid of Stacey. Sue doesn't like her. And so uh, Stacey says, Sue doesn't want to talk about the vote, which means it's for me. So now I don't trust Sue as far as I can throw her, which, according to the group, would be not far. <laughs> <laughs> I am, um, you know, I was I was watching today of that um, that that special DVD. It was originally a VHS about the most outrageous moments, whatever kind of recap, and it gives some. Uh, extra content and it has everyone a little bit more from their either from their audition videos or for their um their interviews th- during the casting process and like when i was watching stacy i was getting a lot of jerry vibes from her kind of mm-hmm. like the things mm-hmm. they were asking her and like that you could tell they definitely were trying to get that side out of her because she was very kind of like um like slightly villainous in how she would say things and have this kind of wit about her and stuff so um i agree i think they're actually i mean I made the joke about how she wouldn't live up to be rudy but i do think there's more to her than we often give her credit for yeah burnett Bur- burnett has a good profile of her in his book where he talks about like her nicknames from home are boom boom and slambona uh <laughs> and she's a thyroid cancer survivor so like as much as people and that probably also irked her a lot coming in and being called weak over and over and over again because as someone who like you know had her own survival story she has proven and i don't think anyone who was cast for the show was weak in any way you know they really made sure at the top here to really cast like not the best of the best but the people they felt were the most mentally tough to get through this so to sort of shed some background onto stacy's story it gives a lot of perspective as to both the way she approaches the game and also the way she approaches certain situations like what happened with Sue here, which I think is a very astute observation. Uh, and it's something that's even used to this day on Survivor of like, hey, if people aren't looking you in the eye when you're talking about stuff, it probably means it's you. I, I think wanna... people, Go ahead. people people need to really also realize that, you know, this is the first season of Survivor. It is an unknown quantity when they started this project. So the people that, that tried out for the show, you know, was casting, it's not like, you know, the whole world is wanting to get in on survivor, but when they throw out this casting call or when they throw out all of this sort of uh, stuff, um, these are the people that, that call. And so they basically had the pick of the litter for the people that were auditioning for this type of adventure show of a lifetime and whatnot. And these 16 were their picks and, you know, you don't necessarily need to say that they were the best 16, but they were the right 16. But I think that, that you know, as a group, this 16 has so many qualities that a lot of later castees probably don't have. And not everyone gets all of their qualities shown out. And I think that Stacy's one where she didn't get a whole ton of time and she didn't get a whole lot of development, mainly because she wasn't there very long. And, you know, she was on Toggy and Toggy was focused on, like, know richard and they were doing the richard rudy stuff and for the most part and you know they we we have little glimpses of stacy we absolutely do but you know we don't get the time you know and i think that usually when when we don't know somebody from these early seasons it's either a time issue or they're sick and you can't control that and every once in a while like a stephanie from thailand it's just they aren't what they were in the audition video and you know sometimes that you know the island kind of drags you down and that's what happens but um, Stacy is definitely one where like, I think that she could have been some, some character if she had gone further in the game. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for Stacy. She's someone that I always think is very misunderstood and, and unfairly forgotten because you look at her, she's tiny. She's no, she adds almost nothing to that tribe. She has no size. She has no athletic ability. She could be abrasive, but right off the bat, she was the first one talking about alliances and Richard immediately identifies her as his biggest threat. She's dangerous. And the only reason I think Stacy didn't do well is because Sue has such an, an amazing BS detector. She's like, this chick is full of shit. I hate her. And Sue just wanted Stacy out. But I think of someone, if you don't have someone as astute as Sue calling the shots on Toggy, Stacy probably does very well. She gets very far in this game. She becomes a big character, all despite the fact that she brings almost nothing to the game of Survivor on paper other than her intellect and just wily survival skills so like i have a lot of sympathy for stacy i just i think she should be better remembered than she is i'll do you one further i think if stacy's on pagong she does a lot better obviously mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to not do a lot better considering you went out third but you know if you're comparing like the hardened leaders of those tribes i think gretchen has a certain amount of sympathy or a sort of blind spot to that's that to your point sue really didn't so even what Stacy was trying to do with the alliances and everything, we'll talk about it, that I think Pagong was more savvy to the idea of an alliance than I think a lot of people remember, so I could definitely see her fitting in with them. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go even one step further. This is going to blow your mind a little bit, even you guys. I think. How many steps have we gone? <laughs> you could just mute the entire podcast, Fisher. I don't care. <laughs> but but while well, back in the day, you know, Survivor contestants from the first couple seasons were not supposed to interact with the fans. They were very hands-off. You didn't really know most of their, their last names. They didn't have public emails. There was no social media. But there used to be stuff like uh, bulletin boards and chat rooms and stuff. Like AOL had a Survivor chat room. There was a, a lot of websites had very rudimentary message boards like that. Stacy Stillman was the first person I ever saw interacting with the fans. She used to pop onto these uh, these chat rooms and message boards, and she would talk to people. And I saw her do it at least three times. And she was the first survivor I ever talked to. And she was super friendly and super cordial and very nice to the fans, and would always answer their questions. Like she was the first survivor I remember really interacting with the fans on the internet on a on a regular basis. And I don't know if the show shut her down or if she just stopped doing it, but. For everyone just thinks she was abrasive and horrible, she was the first survivor I really remember being a big hit with the fans because she was nice to them and they could. she was approachable. So there you go. I think I hopefully blew your mind, even Paul, on that one. I think you went a step too far. Please take a step back. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, six feet. Six feet distance. I'm socially isolating. But yeah, so okay, so that we're in the episode here, and Toggy can't catch fish, and they're complaining that Sue's starting to complain that Stacy's worthless, and Stacy, of course, is trying to push it all into Rudy because she knows she's worthless, and she's trying to get Rudy out first. And we go to Pagong, and this is where they get the scene that really endeared, I think, Pagong to mm -hmm. a lot of the audience: the mud volcano. Yeah, because it was like they're the good time tribe; they're creating the fun, entertaining TV. To uh, to Jay's point that like so basically, Greg, Gretchen, and Colleen. They're on their own tapioca search. Uh, they find a couple of things, but the one thing they find is a big blooping mud volcano. And so they coat themselves in mud and play in it, and then they basically get everybody. And they'll, you know, they're all dying right now, and even though they're still as malnutritioned, in fact, they probably expended more calories going to the volcano, it's definitely a mood lifter. And I think it's a great microcosm of how people remember Pagong, right? It's like they were the people that were having fun on the island. Burnett's book says that uh, their nickname for Pagong was Beach House 
because it really did seem like for the most part a bunch of like young kids staying at uh one of the kids parents beach house for spring break were like they're not going to necessarily focus on getting tasks done. They're just going to have a good time and, as a result, entertain the audience. Can you imagine what a waste that mud volcano would have been if it had been on the Toggy Beach? Like Sue's, Sue's like, that's a waste of time. Well, don't they go there for the uh, the final five challenge? I believe they do. We finally, yeah, we see them there That when they have to put all the mud on Count the Mud, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish we would have seen more of Rudy they... frolicking in the mud. Well, I'll tell you what it's like when Toggy uh, goes to it is the almost mutiny because that was when uh, Richard wasn't going to try to get everyone. You know, we'll talk about that again, but it's when Richard tried to get everyone not to participate in the challenge. So we do see what happens when Toggy's presented with the mud volcano. Uh, no, we're not doing this. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and then didn't they have to slather mud on them for the final um, keep your hands on the idol challenge? Yeah, for hands on a yes. hard idol, they had to they covered themselves in mud before they did the, uh, the they rest of passage. Up, but, but you notice, like, Richard talks about it. Like, Richard was like, if you cake yourself with mud, you're just going to get hotter under the sun. So you can see, like, you know... Kelly slathers herself and whatnot. And you see Richard, he's got like two streaks of mud just on him. Cause he's like, I'm not doing it. You know, yeah, yeah, Rudy like... looks like, Rudy looks like the rock biter from never ending story. He's covered in gray. <laughs> wow. He pulled that one out of nowhere. That's good. I like that. These were big, strong hands. <laughs> okay. So back to episode three here, we have a, in a really interesting conver- uh, conversation here with Dirk and the rest of the Toggies about religion. Yeah, so I want to read, actually, now I have the receipts, as the kids said. I want to read a couple of excerpts from Burnett's novel as we walk through this, because, as I talked about this last time, he has some opinions about Dirk, and specifically the reason why he believes Toggy is targeting him. Uh, Sir Burnett, Burnett writes, Dirk's demise was probably a few tribal councils off, but it was sure to come, for he was beginning to annoy Toggy. The reason was his Christianity— there seems to be something threatening about a devout person of any faith to non-believers. It's as though a mirror is being held up to their faults. They feel judged. Whenever an individual closer to life's ideal state comes in contact with those drifting further away, a physically fit person in a room of smokers, a mentally balanced person speaking with someone fragmented and dysfunctional, that person is quietly scorned as a reminder of imperfection. Thus the universal dislike for those seeking a higher plane. Mankind, by its very nature, is an imperfect animal. It's easier to revel in imperfection and mock those taking the bold step towards improvement than to actually attempt the step. On an island, that mockery can translate into an easy vote. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, so yeah, I mean, obviously, again, Burnett, as a very devout man himself, is giving his own perspective. I think we could see from Burnett's perspective who he hoped would be the Stacey Stillman (laughs) to make it further. But yeah, really reading that really colors this scene for me completely differently. Well, yeah, I'm just yeah. saying, whether you agree with that or not, I just love that thought process. He put that much thought into this episode. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't I think, necessarily agree with him, but I, I just well, love that there's, he's doing that. Well, he's doing that because, as Mike said, Burnett's a very devout man himself, you know, and, and that's evident with things that he's produced over the years and, and, and whatnot. And I think that, you know, when you have that, when, when that is your uh ideology and that's that that's your mindset then you can justify that mindset and and i'm not saying that it's right or wrong that i'm not don't read anything into what i'm saying but he's given that he's given dirk's plight and you know dirk uh with it you know uh, very flaunting his devout christianity in front of everyone and, and burnett says i've done that and probably people have said some things about me but this is what i think and so burnett's probably given that a lot of thought and he looked at that and he can immediately identify that 
Yeah, well, you can make the argument that's probably exactly why Dirk was cast. He's like, I can kind of see this might be a problem for people. Let's just see what happens. And I, I don't want to keep taking steps, but like you could imagine there's a reason why he's on the same tribe as Richard. Much like oh, there's yeah. a reason why Rudy is on the same tribe as Richard as to, like, how does he approach the situation? And, I, I mean, I, it doesn't seem like, at least from what we were shown, it's anything terrible. It just seems that Dirk is uncomfortable with not just Richard talking about sex, but really anybody talking about sex. Uh, and he goes into it further in, actually, the episode 5 chapter about how he sort of psychoanalyzes Dirk that the reason why Dirk would leave conversations about sex wasn't because he disapproved, but because he felt like he would be tempted by it and you know he is uh, a virgin up to this point uh but it's really interesting and we really start to see the beginning of a storyline of dirk versus sue that'll really like come to full fruition when dirk gets voted out but you know sue is we we start off with dirk very you know dirk's perspective reading his bible saying you know my testimony is not something i'm afraid i'm afraid to not share uh you know and then cut to sue i can only take so much preaching and so well she already put in her time (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like it's it's really interesting and then to have and then to have that cut to this weird like they're trying to frame it as an unrequited romance that Dirk is crushing on Kelly, but you know, he she obviously has a boyfriend and also like he's a you know, he's very repressing some stuff as people are assuming. So this entire scene is one of the more interesting parts of the episode for me because essentially it's just a character analysis. Yeah, well, it, there's a couple characters being analyzed, and I and Paul already mentioned Sue. I love the Sue quote here because Sue uses weird words, the, the, not the, nor- the word a normal person would use, where you normally would say Dirk's driving me crazy, but no, she says Dirk's about driving me wild with that, <laughs> which is generally what you say as someone when someone's turning you on. Right. Well, she's. I, I just love how gentle she is with this topic here. It's like, oh, sex, you'll like it. You'll come back. You will. And like, it's like such a good example of like two people not connecting because she's just like going on and on about, oh, you'll like it. You'll, you'll like it. You'll yeah, come back. You and should try sometime. Oh, you should try it sometime. You'll like it. And then like not listen to him being like, it's a gift from God. I, I know. Like, like they're just like these two people, even these two people from Wisconsin who are not seeing eye to eye, you know, on this issue. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's this indeed is a very mature scene, and it's one of the scenes that always stands out to me when I watch Borneo, because there's not really an equivalent to this in more modern seasons, because in right. modern seasons, they just mock Dirk, and everyone make fun of him, and they vote him out. It'd be like Eric Reichenbach. But, like, they actually try to present it from his side as well, and it's very interesting. Like, in a, in a modern season, they play like a religion nullifier. Where someone has a little idol shaped like the devil, and you play that on Dirk, and he has to shut up. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like... like... This, I was going to say, they, in this, they actually have Richard saying, you know, Dirk is different from me, but I respect his commitment to it. So Richard really appreciates that Dirk is going with this and sticking with it. And then Dirk comes out and says, you know, Richard talks about homosexuality all the time. Why can't I talk about religion? How's that any different? Well, Which is very that, interesting because they don't do that in most seasons. Well, no, but I think that also this is a product of, you know, because we're talking about Survivor being sort of this new concept uh, on American television, right? You know, I, I know that, you know, it was derived from, you know, other kind of blah, blah, blah. But like, this is a reality show. It's a reality show in which they're all competing on an island to win a million dollars. But I think that, you know, reality television is not a really like a huge thing, to, you know, in, in all of American mainstream. And you can argue that Survivor is the thing that puts it on the map. And I think that it does. But you could also argue that probably the one piece of reality television that is the big staple in America is probably MTV's The Real World. Mm-hmm. And 
there's a wonderful Saturday Night Live parody that I always think of, and I don't know all the things, but it's the, the whole concept of like, you know, they introduced one, they had their own like real world parody and they were like, I'm this person and I don't like cowboys. And then the next person that's in the house is a cowboy. Mm-hmm. And they're like, and I don't like, you know, Eskimos. Eskimos. And then there's, you know, um, what's his face? A Rob Schneider playing an Eskimo. You know? And that's the whole thing is that they don't like something, some sort of, ethnicity or type of person or occupation or something. And then the next person that's in the house is literally that. And then they don't like some person or race or ethnicity or occupation. And then the next person interviews that. And that's what kind of the real world was, was it wasn't just people that were young and attractive drinking a lot and hooking up. It used to be this thing where they would take people who had prejudices against a gay people and and they would put them in a house with gay people and and they would try to interact and 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 try to hash out and and try to come to some sort of uh not really an agreement but just sort of like hash out all of the issues that they have with each other and with society and with all of these things and and that's kind of to me a staple of american reality television i think that there's a tad bit of that mm-hmm. in survivor because they're following that pattern yeah, it happens here because uh, Richard and Dirk really do respect each other, even though they're very different. It's like right. it's spelled out very obviously. And later we see with Rudy, where Rudy will say, "You know, I don't agree with Richard's lifestyle, but he probably don't agree with mine neither. But it doesn't matter because we got to work together." And that's really the gist of Survivor right there. We don't have to accept each other. We just got to work together. That's the plan here. And so I just I just think it's very mature this whole scene. I like the way it's handled from both sides. And also, I also remember from SNL, the real world, when they have Bob Dole's peanut butter. Do you know that one? Who <laughs> stole Bob Dole's peanut butter? <laughs> yeah. If you're, Bob, you're looking Bob, for, Bob yeah. Dole's a dick. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking for random SNL grabs, one of my favorite sketches of the 90s. <laughs> That's a good one. This is slowly just morphing into, like, Remember 2000, the podcast. <laughs> This is like I love the 2000s. I'll be Hal. Uh, what's his name? Hal, Hal Sparks. Sparks. Is that his name? Yeah. yeah, from Queer as Folk. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here we go. We we've got uh, Dirk's religion is really isolating him from the rest of the tribe. Again, whether you think you're Team Dirk or Team Not Dirk, it's just clearly obvious he doesn't fit in. His his downfall is inevitable. But now we're going to get to the scene that I would argue one of the most important moments in Survivor history. Nobody ever talks about it. The episode three reward challenge where Richard is going to win the fishing spear finally. Yeah, I mean, this is also, I mean, if you're looking for like a close challenge, uh, this ain't it. And it, it's super easy. It's sort of like, I guess, I don't know what we call the pre-Gabriel K memorial challenge. But uh, there's two <laughs> big chests at the bottom of the ocean. Bring them back to shore and you win, uh, you win fishing, you win a spear. And because Pagong has Jervis, basically, and Jervis even admits this beforehand that swimming is not his thing. We'll get to that in a couple of episodes. Uh, you know, Toggy just easily gets there first, gets to the chest first, and is able to easily get it. And Mr. Hatch, as Jeff calls him so properly, ends up getting that spear. And I do not think that that leaves that guy's hands until he's voted out of Survivor All-Stars. <laughs> I, I sort of miss these straightforward challenges in a way. Like, not not totally. You can understand why they create challenges differently nowadays where and if you notice a lot of challenges have lots of multiple steps to them you know it's like run out and get a thing bring the thing back and then now do another thing and now go to a place and do ring toss or you know solve a puzzle or do a thing and the reason why they do all of these different little stations other than hey it's good tv and and whatnot is 
there's different ways for a tribe to get caught up in one of these sections, right? So that in theory, challenges could be more close, I suppose, right? And hey, there's still blowouts that happen, but I love a lot of these early challenges, especially in this season, where like just a tribe wins. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Everybody has a skill, and the challenges eventually hit the skill that the one person's good at. Which yep. is what Stacy's going to perpetuate at the end of this episode. <laughs> uh, we should also mention, again, another little microcosm of Pagong being the fun tribe. Tagi sternly walks into the challenge, and Pagong does a conga line. In Well, I think, do they have the mud on them from the mud volcano? I can't remember, but I do remember that's one of the more uh, iconic, if, if there were gifts back in the day, you know that'd be part of the, one of the more popular gifts is Gong's conga line. What <laughs> I, it would be something like heading out of heading out of quarantine like, and then they would yeah, show or like, the, uh, the going line. to Friday happy hour like. Right. Um, and I, I, I love that, like, how I like, compare, like, Toggy walking up all serious, though, of to to um, jump ahead just for a second. Once they do win, I do like how Toggy does this lame, like, dance around yeah. the chest. That was kind of, I don't know if it was like, no, they're, yeah, they're all, they're like... all have a hand on the snorkel and they're moving yeah. around in a circle like a maple. I wonder if that... I wonder if that was like, we need to do that because they did something fun, or if the producers was like, okay, we, we, we need something else from your side. They're like, okay, we'll walk around in a circle here. Wait, so you're thinking people in 2000 knew the word quarantine? I'm assuming it's like bequeath, where people just suddenly learned it in 2020. No, that's not, if this was airing now, they would use the oh, um, okay. they would use that to uh, to describe current events. <laughs> so the lady pointing at the cat and yelling, "There's an alliance!" and the cat's like, "No, there's no alliance. We're just toggies. We're sitting here." To be fair, Doctor <laughs> Sean's much more of a dumb dog than a cat. Okay, well, a couple things about this challenge that just upon rewatching it the other day, when they swim out to the chest to get everything, do you see how far Richard is ahead of everybody? Mm-hmm. Like nobody's even close to a good swimmer as that guy. In fact, when they get out there, the Toggies have all the good swimmers like Sue and Sean are really good in the water. They're just dusting the Pagongs. The Pagongs, the only person they have that's even remotely good in the water is Greg. So that's one of the reasons that this challenge is such a blowout because now you... I don't know if you guys have read the Stingray book. This this is for our listeners who might not know, not for you. But the Stingray is this book that was written about season one, the controversy, the Stacey Stillman controversy. But it's got a lot of biographical stuff about Richard Hatch, about how he grew up in Rhode Island, on the water, how every day of his life he'd go out and swim like Tarzan. He loved to be out in, the, in nature, just doing nature stuff. And he was especially out in the water. That was his thing. He'd go underwater and swim as far as he could, catch fish. So this is like what he did every day of his life growing up. He was just in the water. So even though he's like a big, you know, bulky guy that doesn't move around too quick, he's amazingly quick in the water. And you see it in this challenge when he dusts everybody. Yeah. And Burnett says how uh, in college he did water polo and he rode crew. So like that also gave him a broad, you know, body as well. I didn't even notice this until Burnett brought it up that he has a tattoo of like four humpback whales on mm-hmm. his chest as well. So yeah, I mean, like you, I mean, when you're talking about like everyone has their challenge, it's also like everyone has their part of camp life. Mm-hmm. And Richard now getting a spear is going to essentially eradicate any animosity or like brewing sense of getting rid of him that existed in that first episode after he, you know, failed so badly on trying to get everybody together. Yeah, and this is the one thing we have to drive home to people that everyone, this is the modern day argument. The common wisdom is that Richard wins Survivor because he invented strategy. He invented alliances. And like, those are not true at all. Yeah, he's a smart guy. There are other smart people too. But 
the minute he gets this fishing spear, and again, you have to know Richard's background to know this is exactly what he did every single day of his life when he was a kid. He was this lonely teenager who got picked on. He was gay. His dad didn't like him. He wasn't real popular. He'd just go out in the water around his house. He had a fishing spear, and he'd catch fish. This is literally what he did almost every day of his life. So now they give him a fishing spear. This is like, you know, handing a fat kid candy. And I know that's a horrible analogy with Richard because he's large, but he, he is now being given the one thing that makes him invaluable. He will never be voted off in the pre-merge again because he's so valuable. He's so good at this and nobody else is even close. So this to me is why Richard wins Survivor. He gets so powerful right here and he, he brings so much goodwill to his tribe. They will never even consider voting him out prior to the merge after this. All right, so we have Richard with his spear, and this is we get the first montage of him going swimming. And I remember this one with Dirk and Sean on the raft, and they're like, catch fish. And Richard just keeps coming back with stingrays. And they're like, no, fish are better. And so after, like, the fifth one, they're like, all right, good job, Richard. Yeah, again, I will say that Dr. Sean is an asshole, especially in these initial stages with him being like, if I was a fish and I saw Richard swimming at me, I wouldn't stick around long. Big, fat, gay man with a spear coming at me. I think that, again, if you look at sort of what Sean was trying to do of, like, trying to bolster his acting career, trying to become, like, Survivor Seinfeld, you could see him trying to be quippy, but it, I don't know. Especially in today's lens, it does not look so great. See, no, yeah, go ahead, Jay. It's just amazing just the language that is used about people and toward people when you watch it. And I'm not going to say it doesn't hold up well. I mean, it really doesn't, but – you know, it, it's again one of those things where that's just how society was. Society just talked about certain people in certain yep. ways, and it's and and you kind of have to just. It's a thing you have to accept and move on with it, even though it's you know technically not okay. But yeah, Sh Dr. Sean's not necessarily, you know, he's an asshole, but he's not an asshole for his, uh, you know, uh, for for what he's saying about no, about you know he's an asshole for for basically for continually in, being in denial that Richard is catching fish for them right. by pointing out well uh, listen I am a beggar but I am also a chooser that's a ray bro <laughs> well it's funny you bring that up because my overall takeaway from Borneo when I watch it again is that the reason Sean is not especially good at Survivor is because he's too nice. He does not want to get his hands dirty. He does not want to appear bad on TV. He does not want to do anything that would get people to dislike him. And it's funny that that's the lens that you view him now. Oh, he's being an, he's an asshole. Like, because I think that's his problem in Survivor. He just wasn't an asshole enough. He doesn't really, he will not commit to Survivor at any point. And you'll see that later, that people are insulting him and he won't insult them back. He's very noncommittal, very flat. But I understand the word choice, obviously, he doesn't hold up. But the overarching arching picture I see from Sean is he's just not mean enough. He cannot really get his hands dirty and it really hinders him once the game gets nasty. Well, let me, Whoa. let me clarify and say that, you know, that might be the perception by the time he finishes. I think when he starts here, he thinks he's got this game on lock. He's yeah. like, I'm a big buff guy. I've got a great personality. I'm funny as hell. And I am so intellectually superior that, you know, if I do have to vote on the jury, I'm going to vote for the guy that wins. Again, Burnett outlines that to the point in his book. That's more so where I'm coming from. That he has a very yeah. cocky attitude, especially in these first few episodes where he thinks he's God's gift to Survivor. Yeah, I, I think that it's that more than that than anything, Mario. It's not necessarily how he's treating other people to their face or, or mm -hmm. whatnot. Cause, cause I, I think that he is a nice guy, you know, in, in, in deep down and all, and all that sorts of stuff. But I think that it's, it's the fact that like Mike said, he thinks he's got the game on lock. And because of that, he's not, 
he's not reading anyone's social cues. He's just there and he's doing his thing and he's like, I'm doing this thing. Yeah. And it's something I believe I said in part one that Sean is an extraordinary person, very smart, very underrated athletically. He's really good in these challenges if you pay attention. And he's one of these people that's so good at everything. He cannot, he cannot, it doesn't cross his mind that other people might be good at stuff too. Exactly. So when Richard starts becoming the king of the tribe, he, he really bristles about it because he's not really expecting that. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, he's, Sean has lots of issues. We'll get, we'll get more on him later. <laughs> okay, so, so yeah, Richard catches the first fish. And he says, or the first bunch of stingrays, and he says, you know, keep me and you'll be well fed because Richard's not subtle <laughs> and he's not wrong. Yeah. Uh, does, does, doesn't he say tribal council, like Jeff says, like, here's the conch, say something. And Rich says, keep me, I'll catch fish. You know, yep. he's, he's so loud about catching um, fish and stuff that uh, Pagong overheard it. That's the thing. I was going to ask about that. So Colleen, to start this scene, is like, I heard Toggy was catching fish. And we'll get this, I think, in a couple of episodes as well of like, I believe Toggy is going to talk about like, oh, I heard Pagong got all this fruit or something. I mean, what do we think that is? Do we think that like the producers told them? I know that Jeff had like been making trips to camp. Did he tell them? Did it just happen to like leak out? I'm just wondering how much information was told between tribes off camera. Yeah, this is this gets into the shadiness of the season, and it's a very underrated part of it because you don't, people don't notice it unless you look for it. And I'm glad you pointed it out. Yeah, Colleen, we cut to Pagong. This is the scene where they eat rats because they have no food. This is they're desperate. And Colleen says, "We heard they caught a fish." Yeah, <laughs> how did they hear that? Now, I, I think what you said, Mike. I think the producers were telling them that because they want to goad the other tribe into upping their game a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I think the producers are doing this. There's another one later in the season. I think it's like three episodes down the road where Kelly says, "The Pagongs just sit around all day and play in the mud volcano." Like, how does she know that? Like, that there's way too much information going on between the two tribes. The producers have to be doing that just to prod the tribes along. They could be doing that. They also could be exchanging some random banter you know, while they're waiting for challenges to be set up. It could be, or Jenna's talking so loud that everybody hears her. Yeah, I heard. actually heard Tina leaked to Pagong about Toggy's fish. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's go to the rat scene. And again, it cannot be stated enough what a big deal this scene was at the time. Anybody who talked about Survivor, anybody who was on a talk show, they had to mention the rat scene. It was the big takeaway. So who wants to go through this one? So we should start, I guess, with Greg doing his best Wiley Coyote, right? Like, everyone's sort of getting ready with it. Gretchen had killed a rat with a soup spoon, but Greg made a... Actually did a pretty ingenious job of making... In true Greg fashion, like, when he's really focused on something, he's pretty ingenious with it. Uh, He, like, basically makes a a noose, and he's able to actually catch one. Surf and turf, as Paul young Paul Osselson learned. Learned a new word. Ding! Minnows and rats, and, of course, Greg, being Greg, is just casually brushing his teeth and watching Joel just murder these rats. It is such a long scene, too. It really goes on for a long time from start to finish. Um, you knew that they they knew that this was going to be one of those scenes that everyone talked about. And one of my favorite lines from it as they uh, skewer this rat and uh, eat it is um, Joel. You know, he, he starts talking about how, um, you know, it tastes like chicken if you use your imagination. And I love Ramona's response. Am I using a lot of imagination? Yeah, that's such a good one. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Ramona lines. And then Joel just drops in at the end with, don't smell it. <laughs> don't smell it. It's like, <laughs> don't smell it. 
but this is also, you know, I feel like we had gotten, we got the, a Greg and Colleen scene, but I feel like this is really, I think, the first time we see Greg's quirkiness. Uh, this is when we get into whole the, the questions of edibility only have to do with your perceptions and the I'm concerned it'll be a bit gamey. We don't quite have the gravy we're looking for, uh, which, again, like now we're starting to see into the weird weird world that is Greg Buis. Because I think next episode is the coconut phone as well. So, like, we're really starting the downhill slide. <laughs> and this does have the great punchline at the end again like paul said a really long scene all the setup and they finally eat the rat that greg has caught and you expect it's going to be horrible but jervis you know the pickiest eater of the bunch eats some and he utters the dread cry we got to kill some more rats tonight it's on like the break of dawn like hot buttered popcorn <laughs> so anyway and that kids is how the pagongs invented the coronavirus <laughs> Well, I do like, speaking of, uh, of segment cappers, I do think Ramona's Why You Hogging the Rat, Joel, is like a perfect way to end that segment. That was a great editing choice. Of like, yeah, well, I totally the, agree. The co- complete 180 of, again, how disgusting and big at the time it was to eat rats, and then Ramona being like, hey, give me some more. I thought it was just fantastic. Now, I wonder if Taki found out about it. And, well, I do think, I think Rudy does say at a certain point, right? He does say in one of these episodes, like, yeah, I wouldn't get a rat or anything. I won't get that desperate. So maybe it did go through the grapevine. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, Rudy's like, I hear that it's on like hot buttered popcorn. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> it's another phrase did. that young Paul learned, yeah. Orville Redenbacher's <laughs> like 50 years younger than me. Mom, today I learned what a bowel movement is, surf and turf, and when things are on to the break of dawn like hot butter popcorn. Paul, stop watching MTV. <laughs> Okay, so now we go to the immunity challenge for this episode. And this is one I always kind of forget about. It's a weird challenge mm-hmm. where a it's like an emergency has come up. Stop. Your <laughs> smallest member of the tribe is sucking a tree. Stop. And we have like the Pagongs doing the little, the little shtick about yeah, it. Yeah, of, of course, Toggy just reads it normally. And then it's like Pagong has a whole theatric. Every time they point to Colleen, she has to go, stop, stop, stop. And you can see she gets, like, annoyed with it at some point. She's like, okay. Yeah, she, she, she's like, oh, do I really have to commit to this whole bit? This is a very long message. There's, there's, but... there's a lot of stops. I thought there was going to be, like, three. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of these classic challenges that happened, in the, especially in the first four seasons, um, that they almost all did. And this was almost one, one that we almost always got in the beginning. There was some build challenge, you know, that'll right. turn into build a raft. You know, next season we do it again, too, with, uh, with the um, – the stretcher type things, but you know, this, this was an original staple of the show that kind of slowly faded out. Okay. I got to point out a little adorable Colleen moment that she does that stop stick with Jenna. And at the end, Colleen like turns to the Pagongs and waiting for some kind of reaction to her little shtick and nobody says anything. There's like no response. So Colleen lets out the most adorable little noise. She's like, yeah, <laughs> it's just a weird noise to come out of her. I just thought that was cute. Well, she shouldn't have drawn too much attention to herself because she's one of the people that gets strung up in the trees. <laughs> yeah, okay, one thing about that. You're supposed to pick the smallest member of your tribe. They stick him up in a tree and everyone rescues them. Why the hell did Toggy put Kelly up there and not Stacy? I'm not like sure. Kelly, yeah, Kelly's all athletic. She could help carry a stretcher. She's bigger than Stacy. Why is Stacy not up in the tree? Well, Stacy doesn't move her ass, to quote uh, Sue. <laughs> so people can move her ass for her. Uh, maybe Stacy thought that you know again she's talking about like challenges that she can excel in because this essentially is a navigation challenge 
uh, that you know mm-hmm. they, they it's it's a bit strength and endurance as well because you're carrying somebody back. But the reason why Pagong ends up winning this is because they are able to find Colleen first in the middle of the jungle. And according to Burnett, in a different world, Tagi would have won because in the immunity challenge, one person from each tribe was actually sent ahead into the jungle to scout out a path to that person. And Stacy found the best possible path and tied off clothing to mark it. But mm-hmm. once Tagi started going, Sue felt she knew a better way and completely ignored it. And as wow. a result, Tagi got to Kelly slower and they lost the challenge right there. Well, I was <laughs> going to ask about that. And I, I, I had forgotten about that because like just watching it, it was like, I was like, is this even fair? Because it was like everything, every the way the Pagong was running, it just looked very easy. And every time you saw Tagi, they were like trying to scale this huge log and were like way in like the thicker, you know, parts of the woods. So uh, that's funny that you bring that up because I had that thought today when I was rewatching. That explains so much. I didn't realize that. So, so Sue thought she knew more than the scout who ran ahead of her. Mm-hmm. She's like, I, I. And again, I wonder if it was a different person scouting. Toggy would have won, but it speaks towards what you said before, Mario. That Sue has this axe to grind with Stacy. She just like completely wrote her off. That because Stacy was the one doing it, Sue felt like she hadn't properly oriented a path for them and so felt like she knew a better way apparently like there was a path that they could use but the the actual best way was like going through the jungle itself through the brush stacy did just that but sue ignored the advice and as a result they got to kelly slower and by the time they apparently got to her pagong was basically out of the jungle wow so the toggies are just like the confederate army going into gettysburg they ignored the scouts and they got crushed (sighs) i'm hoping for a historical joke yeah, but that's not totally true. I know, I know, Fisher. Jay's a history teacher. I knew he'd call BS on that. Well, and I, I've studied a lot about Gettysburg. That's like the one battle. Like, you could have made mentioned a ton of battles, and I'd be like, yeah, cool. But yeah, Gettysburg, I know quite a bit about. I meant Chancellorsville. Ah, yes. Good old, good old <laughs> yes. Antietam. Absolutely. All right, well, I'm just trying to up the literary scale on our listeners here. So, uh, yeah, so this is the, the podcast, or sorry, the podcast. This is the challenge where Pagong wins and Toggy loses, and so uh, this is an immunity challenge, right? Yes, but Pagong gets another reward because Jeff says, all right, guys, you won the idol, but it's not here. It's over there on Bird Island. Go get it. <laughs> How many animal islands do they have around Borneo? There's Snake Island, Bird Island. There's like Hedgehog Island, I think. There's a bunch. Well, uh, and, this, and this challenge was on Larai Larai Beach. They were really <laughs> into naming everything. Which means Turtle Island. I think next episode they go to like ASMR Beach or like Asmara Beach or something like that. <laughs> ASMR Beach. <laughs> They're all whispering. <laughs> Is it Purple Kelly Island? <laughs> Which, like, by the way, uh, this is just full disclosure. My dog is in my room right now, and he's asleep, and so he's a bad snorer. So if you hear low rumbles, my dog is snoring. That would be perfect for the ASMR. I don't know, right? <laughs> it's giving me tingles. Cool. So You can see yeah. right down my shirt, too, on the video. As podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. I really I really like these, and, and it, you know, this season has this weird kind of, uh, you know, it's, there's not like a theme theme to it, right? Like it's Survivor, but they're trying things, right? Yeah. And so there's like a military thing with some, and then there's like an old, like, you know, we're going to get to the the old World the War II, 
the old barracks kind of challenge, but they do have a lot of these things of like, if you're in a survival situation, this is there. And this is one of those where like, your person's hung up in a tree and you need to get them, but they're hurt. So you need a stretcher. And it's like, it's so ridiculous. But at the same time, that's sort of an angle they're going with. And so it's this weird throwback. Yeah, it's almost just like the theme is survival in every mm-hmm. sense of the world where they're like, basically, we're going to take every situation from every disaster movie. And, you know, I'm sure if they had like a, a boat vessel, they would do that challenge from Survivor Pearl Islands where they had to like bail water, you know, out of the boat and onto the other tribe's boat just because they want to put these castaways through every possible disaster scenario and how they can work through it. Well, who can forget the episode five challenge, the pandemic challenge, when they have to stand six feet away from each other and whoever gathers in front of the Capitol and protests loses. But it's, it's, it topical. <laughs> it's an interesting thing because, you know, you can see that the challenges, they, they add multiple steps in them. They don't necessarily have themes, but then they become a lot more adversarial in a lot of ways in the future. Whereas right now it's, it's less about adversarial and more about like, hey, if you're in a survival situation, how would you do? So like even though it's, it's a challenge and obviously the winner gets immunity, in a way they're like, we're going to test your survival skills. Mm-hmm. What the, Think of all the skills young Paul was learning from this show, in case he, any of these things ever happened to him. The interesting thing about these challenges as well for me is that, like, there's a lot of circumstance now with, like, the officialities of, like, you know, oh, okay, tribe, you won, head on out. Okay, other tribe, you have a date with me tonight at Tribal Council, you know, see you tonight. This is much more informal where, like, as they go to Bird Island for some reason, Tagi just sort of, like, sits there. Uh, and Jeff just sort of approaches them like, yep, I'm going to be seeing you tonight. And it, it, again, it's, it's, there's much less formality to it of like queuing things up. It's much more even so. The, even the starting line, Mike, it was like they were like lined up. He's like, hey, I'm Marcus, hey, go. And I was like, kind of <laughs> looking at that. Like they're just kind of standing at these like clumps of people like, OK, go. <laughs> so after the challenge, when they're just sitting there, is that Stacy not moving her ass again? <laughs> Anyone's too positive to bark it for her because she's a move her ass. <laughs> Okay, let's go to the downfall of Stacy here. Well, so... she's she's too prim. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's too prim like. In this like very brief tribal council scene, Rudy goes, "I'm going to vote Stacy tonight at the council because I don't like her and I never will." Never will. <laughs> that was a great quote. That was a big quote at the time. People used to reference that all the time. Which is like one degree removed from him trying to send his friends after Saboga, right? <laughs> yes. Saying you'll never like them. Yeah, he's not ready to kill Stacy yet, but she's on on notice. Okay, so we go back to Tagi, and they've lost the immunity challenge, and it's going to be Stacy or Rudy to be the third person voted off Survivor. And again, if we follow the pattern, it's been old people that don't really contribute athletically or don't fit in. So it should be Rudy. And Stacy even says, you know, I thought it was going to be Rudy. I thought it was a done deal. But now I'm not so sure because Sue's given her the stink eye, and she knows she's on Sue's bad side. And again, Rudy says he's going to vote for Stacy. Sue knows she's the swing vote. She's like, it's going to come down to me tonight. But, you know, I have to consider the tribe. I have to consider what's best for the tribe. And uh, this is where we go to tribal council. And again, right here is where we've just yada yada a lot of the very important shenanigans going on in Survivor history. Well, let's get the vote out. Then let's talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, because this is a really interesting vote as well. Not necessarily the uh, – well, we'll talk about the actual ramifications of the vote. But, you know, we have heard so much talk about the weather. It's all too pertinent that this is the first episode that the rain jackets come out because it is a storm going on at Tribal Council. And, of course, they were out in the woods 
And so they are all drenched. And it's such an interesting sight to see. They talk about this uh, in the book, that this tribal council was so tough to put on behind the scenes where uh, the generator that used to power all the electrical stuff went out twice, submerging them in complete darkness. Uh, you see it at one point where like Jeff just flat out cuts off suit at a certain point being like, I can't hear you because of the rain, so mm-hmm. let's just do any final remarks. But the interesting thing was, according to Burnett, up to this point, the crew actually thought thing- they were things were too easy. Not for the people on the show, but, like, for the show in general. They're like, this is a show called Survivor. Like, barely anything has happened. Like, we just feel like we're a documentary. We don't feel like a reality show just yet. And this was their breaking point, but in a good way. Like, apparently there was this big, raucous crew party right afterwards where everyone felt like this show is no longer cushy. We're actually living out here. We're getting used to island life. You know, this is a real thing now. This truly is reality TV. Which is ironic, given what happened behind the scenes to not produce the outcome in terms of weather, but produce the outcome in terms of the vote. Yeah, this is a tough scene to watch because did they really not put a roof on the tribal council set? They really didn't put a roof on there. Yeah, it was in the middle. Of, I guess they expected like if there was rain that the, the trees would protect them. But it was just so bad. Like, there was apparently, like, lightning strikes going on. Jeff vocalizes uh, on the show how it's, like, it was a weird weather day where it was, like, super hot during the challenge. And now the biggest storm they've had so far is moving in. And then on top of that, Jeff decides to try a new communication method as well with the Toggies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, is that a coincidence that the conch comes out tonight on the rainstorm night? <laughs> I don't think it helped. And I think if Gretchen had been there, she would have flipped uh, her lid knowing that you got to put the tribal counts under can under the, you yeah. know, in, in the canopy. That's your first line of protection here. Who designed this? Who designed this tribal council? BB. Yeah. <laughs> so we should, yeah. we should also mention, so we talked about this at the end of the last podcast, but the conch shell is 150% a response to what happened at the Pagong Tribal Council. And we went into length about what happened off screen and how they were very insubordinate to Jeff. So he's going to try out something on, like, the gallant tribe, that is the Toggies, before they get to the goofuses that are the Pagongs of, like, <laughs> let's make everyone have a turn by holding this the magic shell. Wait, I know. Paul has worked with young children before. What is that technique used in the classroom? Like the talking pencil or something? <laughs> Yeah, the magic, whatever you call it. <laughs> it's like, uh, this class will not shut up, so guess what we're going to do? Only one person gets to talk at a time. Yeah, it's a it's a old-fashioned teacher trick. <laughs> so the conch shell comes out at this tribal council, and is this the only one it comes out for? I forget. Mm-hmm. It's done after this. They should have so- used it on Russell Hands, though. <laughs> yeah. There's got to be an idol in this. Yeah, inside the shell. So, okay, yeah, this is a rough tribal council to watch. Everything's soaking. Nobody could, they're all miserable and shaking. When they cast their votes, the, the water, the, the parchment is all sopping and saggy. You can barely read it. It's just a mess, and it's a huge rainstorm. And if I recall, Jeff invites him to sleep there. After tribal council, you can stay here. For the first and only time after, after the weather has spoken and the tribe has spoken, Jeff flat out says, you can stay the night or as long as you need to before the, the weather sets down and you want to go back to camp because we just feel bad. Because remember that they were responsible for their own transportation. Uh, so they essentially had to navigate their way back through the big snaky path back to camp. And so they felt at least partially responsible you know, for if anything should happen. And now Stacy was gone. So, uh, you know, she was the only one that could navigate them through the woods, clearly. <laughs> Okay, well, a couple quotes, even though it's a very abbreviated, messy tribal council. We get Stacy, where she says, guys, the games coming up are my real strong point. 
which I've always wondered about that quote. How does she know? Do they have a list of what challenges are coming and just maybe not in what order? I wonder if she meant more so that, like, we've got to have a mental challenge in there somewhere. Uh, little did she know that I'm pretty but, sure, like, the first mental challenge will come in in, like, the individual challenges, right? When, like, Rudy wins the game of flipping the squares. But that was always a weird thing with Stacy too, though, because remember when they got the tree mail for the the gross food eating one? She acted like she knew that, oh, it's the gross food one. Yeah, like, she knows. She always acted like, so I don't know if that was something that they all did or that she, like, somehow she knew for some, I mean, the way that things felt like were so sloppy back then, I, like, would not be shocked if you told me, like, she came across the list of challenges and, like, that someone <laughs> yeah, just like left a, lying around, exactly, you know? Exactly, like a piece of paper was on the ground being, like, yeah. list for challenges, do not share with castaways. <laughs> or, you know, yeah, or, or maybe they were, you know, when the producers were talking about the experience they're going to have, what little they said, they were basically like, you're going to have challenges, you know, like, you're going to have to carry something or or rescue somebody or eat gross gross you know island food they were probably things that they had so i'm i i feel like knowing a gross food challenge is not as as difficult as other more intricate kind of challenges that they have and you know stacy was so mad when in episode 4 the litigation challenge showed up like damn it anyway i've been so good at that one yeah our next episode jeff's like we're bringing back the butad challenge <laughs> Now, I have to point out that Sue uses a word here. Young Paul Osselson learns another word for the first time where they're talking about Richard with his fishing spear. And Sue points out that Richard catching fish has not come into foreplay yet. God damn it. I still don't know what that is. <laughs> wow. So, so anyway, Paul immediately ran into his house and asked, Mom, what's foreplay? And he was slapped so hard across the face. To this day, he still has the handprint. And also, yeah. let's try to remember in what proximity uh, what foreplay is was asked in what is a bowel movement. <laughs> God damn it. You're getting into that German video way too much, Paul. <laughs> I hope someone got that joke. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Mom, what's a Scheisen video? Oh, so my there. Lord. <laughs> okay. So anyway, at the end of the night, Rudy is supposed to go home, but it flip-flops, and five to two vote, little Stacy Stillman is voted out of the game, and she immediately turns to Sue and says, you switched your vote, and walks out, and Stacy is none too pleased, and she gives these pissy final words, which, if I recall, were recorded the next day because it was too mm -hmm. rainy, right? Well, yeah, because the final words are done at what looks like a picnic table. So again, that also does not have a roof to it. <laughs> and with that, we lose Stacy, and the whole script of Survivor that the old people are going first is flipped on its head. And at the time, nobody really bat an eye other than, like I said in part in the part one of the podcast, I remember telling my wife, it's going to be the three old people, boom, 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 and then it'll be like sociology after that. But it flipped on it, and all of a sudden it wasn't the old person. I'm like, huh, that's really interesting. But boy, did this become interesting later when the season ended and we found out all the controversy. Yep. So we'll get into it as much, much best as we can and realize that we're four people that are not lawyers and all that sort of stuff. But enough of this has been written out. And you can, I believe it's, it, it, you can publicly look at the, yeah. the, the deposition, right? Like, yeah, Dirks. This is, yeah. And you can look at all this. So basically how this all starts is they didn't necessarily, you know, the the people who were voted out of Survivor pre-merge, you know, there's things that happen now, like, you know, if they're not having like, you know, uh, an edge of extinction kind of thing or whatever, um, it later becomes sort of canon in later years that they take a lot of the pre-merge people, they, they stick them in like a Ponderosa type place, 
And then once the merge, once the, all the pre-merge people are done that, that don't make the jury, they send them on a vacation for a while. And so they get to have a little bit of fun and they're out of the way while they wrap up filming so that people aren't coming home at different times uh, and all that sort of stuff. Here, they sort of shipped them off and they, apparently they were in some sort of hotel-like structure kind of waiting out their time. Sort of. Uh, it, apparently, some a lot of the pre-jurors took to traveling, except for yep. old BB. Uh, by the time the first couple episodes came around, BB had already been back home. Uh, yep. Just went right back. So everyone, you know, I guess I think I guess that was the first major Survivor spoiler that BB did himself was that BB obviously did not win, considering he was back very soon after Survivor started filming. Right. Yeah. Did you hear the details? He bribed someone. He bribed a pilot or something to fly him home. Yes, I heard about that. <laughs> yep. Okay. Continue. But anyway, uh, so Stacy is at this hotel and, you know, uh, a couple other people are there. And one of the people that is there after a while is Dirk. Uh, spoiler alert, Dirk's not going to go very far. And Dirk and Stacy were just kind of having a little happenstance conversation. And Dirk sort of happenstance basically says, yeah, you know, they told me to vote for you. And she was like, like the people in the game. And he was like, no, the producers kind of came and talked and basically were like asking some questions about, you know, do we really want to vote out Rudy? Maybe we should look at Stacy and Stacy kind of went, what? And so Stacy kind of looks into this and she files a lawsuit against survivor, you know, claiming a lot of things and we can get into all of the specific claims that they're there, but I'm just trying to paraphrase here with all that. But she basically uh, files a lawsuit against survivor, basically saying that the producers went in there and talked to Dirk and Sean uh, for sure, and perhaps other people into trying to convince them to vote out Stacy and keep Rudy in the game because Rudy is providing sound bites and also he's also filling out the demographic because if Rudy goes, there is nobody over the age of 40 in this game or, or older than Richard basically in this game uh, anymore. And they were worried that they would lose the older folk demographic when this show came out because. Uh, the old folks would look at Survivor and say, well, all the old people are gone. I guess I'm out and and stop watching. So Stacy filed a lawsuit against Survivor basically saying they messed with the game and got her voted out. And she sued for missing prize money. She sued for her litigation costs. It was a whole thing. Yeah. And this um, for the timeline, this did not come out until after the season, if I recall. Right. Yeah. I believe it came out like right around when Outback started. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, it came out. It was not immediately after the season. It was later. It's like and February it was, of 01. Yeah, it was a big story. I mean, this is this very easily could have ended Survivor. And this was it was all the gossip magazines talked about it. All the Survivor sites talked about it. It was a very poorly hid secret that Stacy was suing the show. There was a book. If you guys, I've mentioned it before, it's written by a guy named Peter Lance. It's called The Stingray. It was originally supposed to be a biography of Richard. He's the Stingray, quote unquote. But it's really a more about Stacy. Stacy became his key witness. He writes all about her allegations, stuff she learned, how shady this show is behind the scenes. It was a very damaging book. And it really could have ended the show, much like those game show scandals in the 60s and 50s. I forget when, but it was a really big deal. And it's amazing, to be honest, that it did not end the show. Yeah, so, right. I mean, we'll talk about, obviously, the, the details of it. But basically, Stillman, uh, she sued for basically, like, I think it was like 75000 plus, you know, some punitive damage. She basically said, like, 
I want third place prize money because, you know, I, I felt like I essentially been a sacrificial lamb. Uh, CBS and Burnett denied the allegations. And I know that both Dirk and Sean have been on the record for speaking. Dirk supported Stacy's allegations while Sean sort of did like a wishy-washy thing. Maybe this speaks to your statement, Mario, about him not wanting to really anger anybody by mm-hmm. saying that, you know, uh, Burnett talked to him, but that his vote wasn't necessarily influenced and that Burnett basically told him like, Hey, just vote your conscience, you know, which is still influencing, but not in an outright, you know, liminal way of vote this way. And in response, Burnett ended up uh, countersuing Stacy for, I think like $5 million. And eventually it was all settled out of court, which the implications of it, at least from a common uh, knowledge perspective is that like, Hey, if you have to settle things out of court, it means that something may have actually happened and you sort of ended up getting on the same page of what settlement would do well to sort of let this thing go away. Yeah. And again, we don't know anything. As Jay said, we're not lawyers, but if you read Dirk's deposition, it's very damaging to CBS. He's very specific about the stuff they were doing and how shady CBS was and how they were steering the game at all times. And, you know, I know for a fact, talking to other survivors and survivor writers, that the contract for the survivor players was amended quite quickly after the season. And a couple of things were changed to point out that basically if you read the contract, it specifically says in black and white, the producers can do whatever, whenever. And it's just that they have that power. And it didn't say that in the first season. So I think, I know my personal belief is that Stacy was 100% right. And there was a little too much of a gray area, whether Survivor was a game show or not. And they quickly closed that loophole to show it after the first season. But the common wisdom at the time was, oh, Stacy's just lying. She's bitter. She's making it up. And most Survivor fans didn't want to hear from her. They didn't want to read this stuff. They didn't want to believe this. But over the years, as the deposition from Dirk came out, it's really hard to say she was wrong because it's all, you know, Dirk is very specific. And I, I you can see what he says in there. It's just again, Google it. You can find it online. But even to this day, there's still fans saying, oh, you know, there's rumors that the, you know, there was a lawsuit between Stacy and producers. There was rumors that bad things happened. I'm like, you know, it's screw that. Those aren't rumors. It's re- re- court documents you can read. That's official record. So it was a very dicey time for survivor at the the peak of their show trying to go from the first to the second season when this story came out and the book especially peter lance's book the stingray it was it to me it's amazing they somehow escaped this and nobody talked about it for a couple years well not only that but it this is sort of an idea that has become a core part of a lot of reality television and uh, you can say that especially from the capacity of its sister reality show, Big Brother, where there was a lot of talk about, you know, producers using time and confessional to, again, not outright say vote for this person, but definitely nudge people in a general direction of like, what do you think would happen if you did this? Or do you ever think about, you know, what this person might be doing? And again, that that is sort of, I think, influencing to a certain point where it's not explicit, but there definitely are leading questions. And I mean, you can read myriad articles about like, behind-the-scenes stories of reality TV, of, you know, what's fake and what's stage and what was used to stir up controversy or stir up drama. So, you know, Survivor was formative in so many ways for the genre of reality television, and I feel like, unfortunately, this might be one of them as well, where, again, you know, this got relatively swept under the rug in the long scheme of things, and it was very big at the time. 
but I think it also maybe gave a signal to people who worked on other shows and were starting up other shows of like, hey, if you want to get an outcome or if you don't like the way certain things are going, maybe a few choice words to your contestants wouldn't hurt. Yeah, it does set ahead, it Jay. does set a precedent. It it does set a precedent, and and just for people knowing, when Mario is talking about whether it's a game show or whether it's not, it goes back to the uh the show Twenty One and quiz show scandals from the nineteen fifties. And there is a brilliant, brilliant movie if you do not know. Um, and I, I know we're here to plug Survivor and Survivor Borneo, but I want to plug there is a movie that came out around nineteen ninety three, nineteen ninety four. It is entitled Quiz Show, and it talks about the original 21 game and and their cheating. And the whole thing about the game 21 was they stuck two people in quote-unquote soundproof pods with uh, with headphones on that only could hear like the host's microphone and they could, they could not hear anything else and they would block one person's sound out at a time. And basically they would ask somebody trivia questions and then they would have to think and then they would answer the trivia questions. And it was basically just a contest to see who could answer more successive trivia questions and basically what happened was was they found contestants that they thought were uh you know attractive for television or well-spoken or basically the producers realized that if they have certain people become repeating winners and people that that become like these long-standing champions that people need to bring down uh that their ratings would drive up so they were literally they said that they were soundproof. They weren't. They said that the headphones only went to the microphone of the host. They weren't. It was to somebody in the back who was feeding somebody the answers to the trivia questions. So it was basically this big ruse, and the person that was there was was in on it. And after that, you know, the this got exposed, and the show kind of had to go you know, do a mea culpa and my apologies and America felt very betrayed, but nobody went to jail because it wasn't technically illegal. They didn't have any rules against this. They were like, well, it's shady as, 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 as heck, but, but there's nothing uh, illegal about this, but it literally got amended so that, you know, game shows had to be a little more on the level with, with certain things. And it was actually more of a, a, a fair competition. Yeah. I've, I've been reading about that recently because I just watched that quiz show movie and, the general consensus is this quiz show thing tanked the confidence that America had in their game shows, and it lasted a long time. Right. I think I read that like the 80s with Jeopardy when Alex Trebek brought Jeopardy back. It was an older game show than they brought it back in the 80s. Like nobody trusted these game shows where people were answering general knowledge, and it took almost like 20 years before people started to finally accept that those might be on the level again. Mm-hmm. And so Survivor's only 15 years after Jeopardy coming back, really. So it was really dicey that all of a sudden this this confidence in game shows was going to be dashed again and Survivor was going to, you know, the audience was going to turn a, bit, a turn against it when they realized it was, you know, perhaps manipulated more than they thought it was. So, again, Mark Burnett tried very hard to distinguish this when he'd talk in interviews. Oh, it's not a game show. It's an unscripted reality. That's the or no unscripted drama. That was the phrase he would always use. It's a it's an unscripted drama like it's. It's still fictional. There's no script, but you're not seeing exactly the way it went down. So he was very careful the way he phrased things. The contract was written very carefully. Stacy was, again, we don't know this for a fact, but no one's heard a word from Stacy in 20 years. So it's pretty safe to assume she was probably paid off to go away and not talk about it. And again, it was just really hushed up. And to the Survivor fan base's credit, 
they did not want to hear this about Survivor. They did not want to hear any of this. They were very angry and very hostile towards any of this news when it would come out. And they would just la la la, fingers in the ears, Clint, just you know, try to ignore it. And it worked. Like it, this did not stick with the show somehow. And I'm going to give a real hot take here. I would have done the same thing if I was the producers. I think they totally did the right thing. And I'm glad that they did not get busted because the show is so much better with Rudy there. And I'm glad they did it, to be honest. Right. But but what's funny to me is that, you know, you, you say that people today are like, oh, I heard there's a rumor of a lawsuit or something like that, uh, which we're saying, hey, it's absolutely there because it's it's in public you know, knowledge. You could you could read the documents online. You could read Dirk's uh uh, testimony online. You can read all of that stuff. But what's funny about that, Mario, is that, you know, today, like, you know, on, on survivor message boards and on sites, you know, like people talk about why they love survivor. Why do you love survivor? Why do I love survivor? I love survivor because it was such a, an interesting and, and new game uh, show concept. And I just loved it. Right. But there are some people that like are like survivors, this pure game of, mm -hmm. of social wits and blah, blah, blah. And they use the phrase pure game. And it's like, no, it <laughs> has never been even in the seemingly uh, innocent first season, which is more like a documentary than, than what it is now. And it's definitely not as slickly produced. You know, it's, it's, it's messy and haphazard and all that sorts of things, but you can read from the Stacey Stillman lawsuit it was never a pure game, and it was never intended to be a pure game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sport. I hear the I hear the use the word sport being used a lot, and that's really not quite the way it works. Like in baseball, if the Yankees are way ahead, the umps can't say, "Well, the Red Sox get a couple extra runs here to make it close." Like it's not quite a sport. Yeah. So, I mean, to get a bit into it again, we don't want to go into, go into too many details because it's publicly available. But so, was it that? they were specifically accusing Sean and Dirk only of being convinced to change their vote? Or was it that Sean and Dirk were the only two to respond to the allegations? Yeah, that's, that's it. That's the bigger question. Because if you read Stacey's allegations and if you read the Stingray, there's a lot more than just this. There's all these allegations that the, the uh, people were giving extra food at the end of the game to make certain players have you know advantages over others. There's a widespread rumor about Kelly... Giving, mm -hmm. being given extra food from the cameraman. There's all sorts of stuff. So this is just part of the picture that Stacy was pointing out that it was shady as all hell. And I think Sean and Dirk were the only two that actually responded to her deposition and were willing to go on the record. I think that's the difference. Because that's the thing, though, is that, like, yeah, because that's, that's a bit of a difference. Because if it's, oh, only Sean and Dirk were convinced it, I mean, I don't want to play too much about, like, the semantics and the numbers, but it would still be, like, a four to three vote, you know? Yeah. Well, there's a couple things I wanted to bring up. Number one is it's very interesting when you watch the next couple episodes how much Dirk is checked out of the game. Dirk is not really involved anymore. And I always wondered if this situation did it and made him crack because knowing his convictions and his stance on, you know, morality, right and wrong, black and white. He's very active the first couple episodes, the first couple days of the game. And in episodes four and five, he's a complete non-entity, has no energy. He's not caring. Like in the, in the episode, they say, oh, he's weak. He's not eating. He's skinny. I always wondered if this situation made him check out a little bit once he realized how crappy it was. He was probably pretty fragile. Then they start talking about putting orange things and condoms on their ding-dongs. And um, 
that probably was enough <laughs> which to he push heard him about over. from Pagong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the other thing I want to talk about is this episode, this season. The producers got caught with their hands in the cookie jar several times. Again, it's not just this incident. There's another one coming up at the merge where the players are going to pick the the uh, ambassadors to go, and the producers overrode them and said, "No, you have to pick these ones instead." There's all mm-hmm. sorts of little things, and there was a lot of negative publicity over how much power the producers had over this first season. And if you watch the second season, it's like there's no producer influence over it whatsoever. And that's the argument why I think Australia is kind of boring, because that's the only season, I think, in Survivor history where the players, the producers just let it play out as it would have played out. And, you know, it's more pure, but it's boring. Like it's the second half of that game is so boring. And in the third season, they start throwing in twists, which... Yeah, they they always said, "Oh, we we were planning to do that whenever." Yeah, whatever. They could they could do a twist anytime they want and there's no in the contract it says they can do that. It's even specifically says. So, I think there's it's it's a very interesting aspect of survivor history. Watch Borneo, watch how shady it was, then watch Australia when the producers are being very careful not to do anything they could get in trouble for and it kind of plays out not as fun and then they go into the third season and they finally figure out the happy medium of what they can get away with. Well, that's the thing is that you know, as you say, they get their hands caught in the cookie jar. But in the future, they're just figuring out different ways to get into the cookie jar. Uh, yeah. And, I, you know, I, I think that they, again, they have not been as explicit in future seasons as to be like, vote for this person. Or, you know, you really need to keep this person around for X, Y, Z. But, I mean, look at something like the fire-making twist in season 35, for example. And... I do not personally think, nor I, do, I think is it true that like, okay, they brought in the fire making twist at the final four specifically so Ben Dreebergen can win the game. This was Ooh. not like an impulse, my God, we need to save him. Here's a twist overnight. But I do think it was a twist to bring in to help people like Ben. And we talked about this, I think, a bit uh, during after Exile Islands, going into Cook Islands with the institution of the final three. Throughout Survivor history, there are moments it's starting in that in season three where, you know, the producers say, okay, we don't like to see this type of gameplay. It doesn't make for great television. What can we do to the game structure that might incentivize more dramatic types of gameplay? So again, it's not sitting someone down and saying vote a, it's more so putting something in somebody's hand and saying, Oh, wouldn't it be interesting if that was used to do something big? Yeah, I do. I, though I do want to correct one thing you just said. You said that it's never been as, as as obvious as producers saying maybe you should vote for this person. I don't have direct proof or evidence or specific examples, but I have heard rumors the last couple of years that other players have mentioned this. Oh yeah, the producers are talking like that all the time. They still do that. Perhaps you should vote this person out. And it's just the players are a little more cagey with not going along with it. But I personally don't think the producers stop doing that. I just think that everyone just uh, assumes it's part of the game now. I'm just saying I've heard many stories about that in the last couple of years that, oh, the producers have done that several times over the years. It just wasn't a big deal. So anyway, I know I know the Survivor fan base. Again, all four of us have been around for years. I know how it works. I know a lot of people are listening to this and their butts are puckering up because they do not like hearing anything about Survivor not being this pure sport. And I feel, you know, I, I apologize. I don't like, you know, talking about this. But to me, this makes Survivor more interesting because it gives you a bigger picture of all the different forces, all the different things going around. And again, it's it's an 
you cannot ignore this aspect of Survivor history. It's a very important part, and it really clouded the way this the show was presented and designed and laid out after this. So that's all I'm saying. I apologize if you don't like hearing about this, but it is important. There was I think at the end... Go, at the go end, for it, Jay, and uh, No, no, you go, Paul. Paul, no, you go. This would be better timing if you go first. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Um, Paul's got a punchline he'd like you to set up. Okay, that's fine. I think that what we're talking about, we talked about, was it a game show? It's unscripted uh, uh, drama, drama. And, all, and on all that sort of stuff. It's a TV show. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it is a television show. You can talk about, you know, with sports, right? Like with a baseball game, you know, with the Yankees playing the Red Sox, like they're doing it on television because they clearly want ratings and ad money and, and you know, all that sort of stuff. But the games are played, you know, if all of the television cameras go down during a live uh, a sporting event, they still play the game, right? Like, and then they would just tell you about it and there would probably be fans and they're like, you know, showing it on their iPhones and, and streaming it or, you know, whatever goes on. But the games happen and then we just watch them. And yes, they're produced for a way for television and for fans that are there in the audience and all that sort of stuff. But the sport is the sport. And hey, sporting things are weird. There's been referees that have been, you know, point shaving and, you know, um, have weird strike zones. And you, there's there's manipulation. And hey, there's the whole Houston Astros of the last like three <laughs> years, right? Like there's cheating in sports. Like, you know, there's, there's skullduggery that's going around in sporting events. But the sport happens and we just also are watching it at the same time. Survivor is not that. Survivor is a television show. It is made to produce television shows. They do it for ratings. And like what Mike talked about, like all of these things, giving idol nullifiers and idols and and double votes and all of these things, giving things in individual players' hands, things that they can seek, that they can find, that they can use, all creates high drama points that they want to capitalize on. They're not necessarily like jazzing up the game for the game's sake because the game is literally just the framework for which this TV show is based upon. It is a television show. They want to make the best product of the television show that they want. Nothing more, nothing less. That is it. Paul? (laughs) Thank you, um, Jay and Mario. Um, I think there actually is a bigger story that came following episode three though bigger than this legal scandal now what would that be paul this is the legend of paul the stacy boot the trampoline and the ice cream sandwich is this an episode of how i met your mother (laughs) it's actually like i uh if i miss anything about the story people should let us know because i like as it's been like 20 years now i don't know it like I hope I'm not missing any of the parts about it because it really is not that great of a story. It's just like, for me, this was the episode that like fully hooked me in. And we'd watched the first couple episodes. I was not thrilled that they were just voting out the old people. But I remember after watching the Stacy Boot, and I think maybe it was the first two episodes that had been recorded on VHS or something. I remember this was like the first like live one because I knew there was no more to watch after this. I remember after the episode going outside on the trampoline with an ice cream sandwich and somehow bounced around, ate this ice cream sandwich. And I remember just jumping on the trampoline, lying on the trampoline, looking up at the sky and just thinking about like, wow, so Stacy's gone. There's three people gone. There's 13 more. And it like really was sinking into me what this game was. And then every week there was going to be someone. I just was like this, like it's hitting me like 10 year old Paul's like getting it. Like they're going to go one by one and there's only going to be one left. And it's not going to be one of these three people. And so 
<laughs> no dummy story. I just really I love this idea of like slowly you know panning in on Paul as the sound of silence plays as he just slowly bounces and comes to the realization of like the stakes that Survivor possesses. <laughs> Such a great story, Mario. I don't know how you forgot it. <laughs> That's a good story. Thank you for enlightening. And then us. my feet started breaking out because I was allergic and <laughs> went to the emergency room, and then I learned what it went to be a real survivor. No, that last part is uh, fan fiction. <laughs> oh, did, you, did your parents carry you in a stretcher through the woods in Montana? <laughs> Correct. And my mom, she, uh, you know, she ripped off cloth and tried to mark a path. And my dad thought we knew better, and then we didn't get there in time, and it was bad. Now, okay. Now, all kidding aside, Paul, I am curious how you younger viewers heard about the Stacey Stillman lawsuit, or when, or what you thought of it. Like, it, was this in your on your radar at all? No, no, no. It must have been way later. I mean, when I was in those like Survivor fan, like whenever the internet stuff happened, and I got involved with that much later on. So, okay, I was thinking maybe it was the thing where Kevin Costner had to deliver the news to you personally on a horse, like in Montana, because you were so far away, and you didn't yes, hear about it for like last, four years. Just last month, actually, he finally made it. <laughs> the Pony Express finally came in. <laughs> yes. And did you look at him and say, "You're nothing but a drifter who found a bag of mail." I'm guessing he did not say that. I said, that took about as long as one of my bowel movements. <laughs> he didn't say that because that's a quote from The Postman, and nobody should watch that movie. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to eulogize Stacey. I think we already have, actually. But I do have to say one thing in her defense. And again, she's been kind of seen as a villain in Survivor history. People don't like her. Oh, she's a muckraker. She was bitter. She took down the show. But if you read Peter Lance's book, he's very explicit in saying all the things she did to help the castaways. And one thing I want to point out specifically is that, you know, Survivor was a huge phenomenon and the players were contract contracted for 13 episodes up to the finale. And as the season went along, the network started saying, hey, why don't we do a live reunion show after the season? People would love to catch up on their favorite castaways. And so the network said, okay, all you guys, we're going to have a, an extra show. We're going to bring you in and put you there. And Stacy, who was the only lawyer of the group, said, no, you're not doing that. Now the show is a massive hit. We were contracted for 13 episodes. You better goddamn pay us for this extra episode. We want a cut of the money that you're all raking in because of us. And she was very instrumental in getting the players an extra 10000 bucks for that reunion show. And it's all because she tried to get them to unionize. And again, in the Stingray, there's a whole controversy that she was trying to unionize them for everything, trying to get people to break their contracts. Richard ratted her out to the show. CBS had been signing all these extra contracts for the re reunion show. But again, yada, yada, yada. Stacey Stillman is the reason the players get an extra $10,000 for the reunion show. So she was actually the one time in history the lawyer was probably the good guy here. Wow, so she started the concept of alliances. She started the 10K reunion fee. She did. I, I like Stacy. I'm team Stacy Stillman. And again, there's no way she'll ever listen to this. She hasn't talked about Survivor in 20 years, but I think she's very important to the history of Survivor and she's not that bad. And I really think she deserves better. Again, it's in the show's best interest that they cut her out of the history, never talk about her again, minimize her as much as possible. But she was very important to how Survivor played out, I just have to say. And with that being said, we finished a whole episode, you guys, two hours in. All right. We're, our goal for this podcast is to get through the merge. I don't know if that's going to happen, but we'll yeah, do our Mara, best. Yeah, Mara thought we were going to get to the Gretchen boot today. So. Oh, no. We'd be podcasting until the break of dawn like hot buttered popcorn. <laughs> it's because I want our listeners to get more content. All I care about is the listeners, you guys. 
Oh, I was muted, or you would have heard me laugh really hard at that. <laughs> Wait a minute! You don't think I want to provide content for people, Jay? You can you can shit on me for all sorts of stuff, but not for that one. Come we on. were not contracted for more than four parts for this uh, show, so if we go longer, I also demand ten thousand dollars, or at least ten thousand ice cream sandwiches. <laughs> yes, please. All right. So here we go. Let's go on to episode four, which I think it's funny for the most forgettable boot of the pre-merge. I think this episode is pretty outstanding. What do you guys think? Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of like infamous moments here, right? This is a coconut phone. This is uh, Sean building the bowling alley. Uh, this is uh, the, the the SOS challenge as well. Like there's a, there's a lot of big stuff happening, even though, like you said, like the, the, the yada yada sort of comes at the very end. But if you're looking at the journey rather than the destination, there's a lot in this episode. Okay, so we start episode four with the storm from last night. I always kind of forget about this. The big storm from episode three at the end carries over into episode four. And the Pagongs are miserable because they had to try to sleep in the rain and their their shelter sucks. Their little hut, I think, is as BB would say, their hutch. And uh, they had a horrible night last night. They're drenched. And Gretchen says, this shelter sucks. It should not be down here by the beach. We're getting drenched. We need a tree cover over us. I'm moving that goddamn shelter. And this is where Gretchen really takes control and becomes the leader here. Yeah. And it, I mean, again, there's some little dynamics in here that makes Pagong maybe a bit more interesting than just the fun tribe. Joel has the natural instinct to take over, but he admits he has no survivalist experience at all. And again, as weird as Greg Buis was, he had really endeared himself to everybody. You know, he was a survivalist by nature. He was athletic. He was goofy, but he was fun. But there is one person who you will consistently hear be on to Greg Buis and what he's actually doing. You know, the the inner game that he's playing that nobody is realizing, and that's Gretchen. Uh, and, and you know, as the segues from uh, building the new shelter into the coconut phone stuff, Gretchen outright says, "If it was every man for himself, Greg would win." He's very relaxed in this environment. Yeah, so this is the infamous coconut phone scene. And again, this was played on every highlight reel at the time, along with the rats. You had Greg in the coconut phone. I know 10-year-old Paul must have been a huge fan of this scene, right? Well, it's one of those things where it's like, like now watching it back, I'm like, okay, yeah, they like they show it, but like it's not that big of a deal. But it's something that's so iconic from from the show. So I think it's one of those ones that really did not get that much airtime at the time, like in the actual show itself, but it just really was one of the things that exploded uh, about Greg. We, we're going to talk about Greg a lot. Like mm-hmm. we're talking about him now, but you know, Greg's not going anywhere for a while, but like Greg is one of the few people and it's really hard to even describe it because it seems like, you know, it, it seems like he didn't necessarily want to play survivor, but he wanted to be there. And he wanted to be noticed, but he didn't want to be super noticed and he didn't want to play. And it's almost like he could like see the chessboard and he could see three moves ahead, not just with the game of Survivor that they were playing, but also with the television Survivor that they were trying to produce. And he saw three moves ahead and decided he didn't like it and would do a fourth move somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Burnett goes into it a lot in his book because suffice it to say, Greg is one of the more interesting people to examine. He personally chalks it up to... Greg sort of having this tick where, like, the more he's expressing that he cares about something, the weaker that makes him feel. 
because that means that that can be a vulnerability that can be exposed. So one of the reasons why he treats this entire game so aloof, you know, like doing the R matey after BB's gone or doing these games or here with the nature phone is because he wants to present this thing of like, well, I don't really care what happens, even though to your point, Jay, I think he really does. And as it gets into later days, Burnett says that Greg's veneer starts to crack a little bit. We're like, maybe he does actually start to care. And maybe that carefree personality goes away a little bit. One thing I do love that's very understated about this nature phone, coconut phone scene is there's a shot of him while they're building the shelter of him actually taking the call. And you see that all of Pagog is actually stopped and waiting (laughs) for him to finish the call as if it was on a real phone. So again, to Gretchen's point, you know, even though what Greg's doing is completely goddamn ridiculous, people are waiting on him. Like, and in that essence, he is kind of manipulating the group. I love how he ends that and just says like, Oh, sorry about that. (laughs) yeah very understated although to follow up on what you just said mike the thing that i always always take away from reading that book is mark burnett did not like greg at all yeah he well because he was making a mockery of his show and so he essentially when he's sort of like trying to reason out why someone would do that and he his personal reasoning and again take it with a grain of salt is like well he does it because he's weak he does it as a defense mechanism when who knows maybe to jay's point he didn't care or maybe he was thinking so far ahead and wanted to manipulate production that like he that was his own game well it's funny i knew a guy like greg in high school a junior high in high school growing up he was the best basketball player in the area the city where i grew up bellevue washington bar none the best athlete he never played a single sport in high school competitively like when we played at the boys and girls club in rec ball, he would destroy everybody. He was always on our team because my dad would recruit him, but he never once played a single competitive sport in high school. And I think it's a lot like Greg psychologically. He's good at stuff, but he also could not handle losing. So if he never gives his full effort, he will never suffer the ego blow that he got beat by somebody. Exactly. And that's what I think. I don't think Burnett's wrong. I think Greg is just he will never give his full effort to a game like this because if he loses, it would be too much of an ego hit. So that's, he has to mock it instead. Sorry, Paul, to bring up sports. I apologize. What's a sport? Oh, sorry. They didn't (laughs) talk about that enough on Survivor Borneo. So Paul didn't learn the word sport. Sorry. I was focusing on other words. Sorry. Paul's bouncing on a trampoline right now. He didn't hear it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this is Greg with his nature phone. And again, we do learn there's a method to his madness. Although again, for as beloved as Greg was, not the production was not a fan of him and Burnett goes out of his way to shit on Greg every chance he gets. Um, we get the, the Sue montage here where Sue is, you know, super driven to work. She always works. She never lets up. And this is where she has her little tapioca montage, right? Yeah. So, but it's also, it's, it's not just her montage. It's a fun little paired moment where we have Sue on the tapioca hunt while Sean had a vision a la field of dreams to reference another Kevin Costner movie and he decides to build a bowling alley. And this really sets up, again, sort of like Sean and Dirk being the lazier members of the tribe versus Sue being the workhorse, where she's going to grouse about, while hunting for tapioca, about how little Sean and Dirk do. Cut to Sean meticulously setting up his bowling alley that nearly no one will use. <laughs> to be fair, it is a beautiful bowling alley, though. He put a lot of work into it. But, I mean, that's the whole thing. Like, you know, and I, I, I've i said before, like, oh, Sean is dense and he, he can't read the room. But it's the whole thing where, like, I just think that, you know, Sean's like, I'm going to do a thing and it's going to be the best thing. And, and everyone's going to, 
agree with it, you know, and, and, and to me, it's, it's the fact that he doesn't, he can't, he can't perceive how other people perceive him. And so because of that, he's like, I had this idea. I want to go build a bowling alley because that amuses me. And maybe he's doing a bit for the camera. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But this is his idea. I'm going to go build a bowling alley where it's like you could be doing anything. And it's probably better than that. <laughs> I do love just looking at it now that we had a show where someone like Sue Hawk had to interact with somebody like Sean Kenneth. When would that happen in real life ever? Like you said, it's the real world. It is. The fun thing about Survivor, it's that these two people who would not even look at each other probably on the street. Like, I don't think Sean has even been in a truck, let alone driven one. <laughs> well, you don't think he's been a long-haul truck driver for years? I mean, I don't know how many truck drivers have pierced nipples, but maybe I just haven't been driving the right trucks. <laughs> that pierced nipple's driving me wild. <laughs> That's like the foreplay there. <laughs> now, Paul, did you know what a pierced nipple was at 10? Well, uh, I learned thanks to Sean, but I like I was going to make this point earlier and stuff like this is like these, these early seasons of Survivor and you kind of act it with Big Brother and I feel like it was kind of the MTV era a little bit like this was kind of this weird reputation that Survivor or that reality TV got right away is that it was like edgy in this sense that you would just watch like a real guy with a nipple ring and they would talk about sex and stuff like that something that kind of goes away pretty quickly i feel like because i feel like even by like you know season two and three it, it's not as risque as some of the topics they bring up here so uh i'm gonna enjoy the nipple rings and bowel movements uh and foreplay for as long as i can yeah, I mean, it's a good point because this is something that, you know, reality TV kind of introduces and breaches some topics that were previously taboo in America. And America is notoriously taboo on television shows just mm -hmm. with slightly controversial or salacious things. I mean, it was the whole fact that, like, wasn't, like, Lucy and Ricky Ricardo, like, the, the first married couple on television to actually be in one bed in a bedroom? Yeah, and I mean, yeah. like, Star Trek was the first series to ever show an interracial kiss on television. Right. Is, I think the Brady Bunch, they didn't even have a toilet in their bathroom, if I uh, recall. Leave it to Beaver was the first to ever show a toilet, I think. Yeah, it, it, again, that, that's a good point. Survivor was considered very edgy, pushing boundaries. But to Jay's point, the real world had already done most of this. This was just the real world on network TV for an older audience. So, yeah, it yeah, was. You, it, you can't discount it, though. You know what I mean? Like, Of it, course not, still, no. Yeah, it I'm still just saying... does its thing, but yes, you're right. Like this, it's Survivor. The early Survivor has that real world concept, which is the putting people from different walks of life together to see what happens, and then also discussing these sort of societal elements. Although now this leads me into a fascinating question I never thought about, and you know, Paul, I'm going to pick on you here. What did ten year old okay. Paul think it meant when you heard there was a gay person? Um, like I don't, I don't really know what. Like, I, I feel like looking on it back now, like the term homosexual and like how like clunky that is, mm -hmm. like say every time instead of gay. So, but I, f I feel like probably in that era, I mean, I feel like I was pretty, I mean, I was 10, but I feel like for a 10 year old, I was maybe a little more tapped into the real world and some of my peers and stuff like that. But like, I remember being kind of like edgy and a big deal and like that they were talked about all the time and. Like, um, like I, I think it was a big deal, and I think I even picked up on it back then. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, I had also gotten sort of an early exposure to it through an episode of The Simpsons that had aired in, I think, like 1997, 1998, that had John Waters in it. It's called Homer's Phobia, and that was also a very groundbreaking episode in what it showed. And I remember that was – I had a very similar Paul-like moment where, like, during a commercial break, I had to ask my mom, like, what a homosexual was, and she had to describe it to me. So, like – 
And I feel like, when did Will and Grace premiere? Will and Grace premiered in like 98, I want to say, yeah, right? Yeah, it's before Survivor, yeah. Yeah, so and that was one of the things where like, I know my parents were, and one of the reasons why we ended up watching Survivor is because they were sort of exposing me to the must-see TV around like 9, 10, 11. So by the time that happened, you know, I had seen the concept of homosexuality and what gay people could act like. Uh, we obviously had not seen it represented in someone like Richard Hatch, but I would say it was not a, a mind-blowing concept concept as much as it may have been if the show had premiered in like 1995 yeah i think i've told this story before but like i was 26 when this show came out so like i'd seen gay people on tv it was not that big a deal you real world had one every season so it's like it wasn't that really a mind-bending thing to at the time but i grew up in a different era you know if you i don't know if you guys know the show soap way back in 19 oh, the late uh, 70s yeah early. billy crystal played a gay guy didn't he billy crystal played a gay guy that show was banned in my house when i was a kid and I never knew why. My mom would just say, it's not for kids. Looking back, that was code for it has a gay person on it. That's mm. what that meant. I was not allowed to watch that. It was the only show my mom ever said, don't watch that. It's not for kids. And that would have been the prevailing mindset among parents in that time period. So I'm just saying society changed a lot in 20 years. All right. So let's go into the reward challenge in episode four. This is the famous SOS signal. Disaster. Challenge. You're stranded on an island. Build a signal. Stop. <laughs> exactly. But we there was one detail that I forgot, and I guess this is a bit of a precursor to what we're going to experience with the whole Ratana meeting, is that tribes get to send representatives. And, uh, you know, we thought that Angelina changed the game, but no, Dirk and Jenna were the game changers when it came to bargaining with Jeff Propes for additional <laughs> rewards. I completely forgot. Yeah, there for people who have not watched this episode recently, there are ambassadors and they're playing for certain items out of the Target catalog or Target, as they say in France. And uh, Dirk and Jenna have to go negotiate with Jeff what they will be playing for. I completely forgot about that. So what do they pick here? There's a whole bunch of uh, a crate full of supplies, blankets, hammocks, pillows, and Jenna gets to throw in a item for Pagong that they want, and they have chosen the spice rack. They would like some flavor with their food. And Dirk requests the fillet knife because Richard needs way more power as a fisherman, I think. <laughs> and it's basically winner gets all. Winner gets both items plus the crates, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's, it's basically, and I love how open-ended this challenge is. Like Paul said, this is going to be one that's used up through season four, uh, which sort of has sort of taken on a new meaning to be the, hey, let's sort of give a, a win to the tribe that's very, that's on the losing end. Like, we see this was like Baran's big comeback. This was a challenge that Mata Amu won. Uh, but at the time, this was, you know, a, a fairly judged competition and we see, again, the very different approaches to things. Tagi is much more methodical. They're focusing on color. They're focusing on words. And the first thing we hear about Pagong is that Colleen's first suggestion is about how sex sells and they should spell out naked. And as Paul mentioned, I believe it's mentioned in the book as well, their initial plan was to run around naked with colored condoms on to try to signal the plane. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure 10-year-old Paul had a fun time asking his mom about that one. I might have blacked out at this one. I don't know. I don't remember. Mom, what's much. a Trojan Magnum? What's that, Mom? <laughs> no. Yeah, well, okay, first Colleen has a little cute quote here. She's like, it's like advertising. We're selling the beach. We're selling our spot, which is, I think, a cute little quote. And like, everybody wants to sell sex. Although, again, to bring up that what you guys had talked about earlier with Dirk, that Dirk doesn't want to sell sex. He's like, come on, guys, keep it classy. We don't need to do that. He's absolutely against nudity or sex being used here. And again, it's not 
shown mockingly. We're shown it from Dirk's point of view, and he's, you know, from his perspective, he's right. I don't want to be involved in this if we're, you know, being dirty or X-rated. But yeah, everybody's arguing what they should do on the beach. And if I recall, Mike, in the book, Burnett just craps all over the Pagans. He thinks they're yeah. idiots. Yeah, he thinks that, like, they're basically just, like, screaming people running around. Well, basically, the way he puts it is, like, Toggy had this intricate design where they were spelled out Toggy is groggy right near the beach. And then they laid in a circle with their rain jackets and in synchronized motion, period, Pagong built a smiley face, period. <laughs> and that's how he described the challenge. But you, you talked about, you know— the Toggy stuff is an interesting microcosm of the of the relationships going on because you have Dirk and Sue sort of going against – or Dirk and Kelly, I suppose, uh, you know, when Dirk's saying that's not creative, that's just looking at a bathroom stall wall. But we get another little Rich and Sean sniping moment, right, where Rich is talking about, like, let's use the white styrofoam floats to make a big arrow in the wall. Sean starts, you know, trying to poke holes in it, and Rich says, like, oh, yeah, yay, Mr. Positive. And uh, then Sean goes on with, like, the, oh, uh, let's just build a big X in the sand. But Rich has a really important quote, I feel like, uh, and not only for his game, but I think this is one of the things that people really point to when they talk about, like, the evolution of survivor strategy, which is he vocalizes this conflict with Sean. I'm going to deal with it in a different way than I would at home. I'm going to use this opportunity to develop alliances, quote, <laughs> to ensure I move into the next round. Can I ask a question here that seems obvious? Aren't we already in alliances by now? I know in episodes two and before we talked about there being alliance and people banding together. So Richard says, I'm going to start forming alliances now, which is treated as canon by the survivor fan base. But are we pretty much in alliances already? Not under but, that dirty title. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think that, you know, people have banded together. Yes. But but to to basically say we are going to be a voting block that's going to vote together for every vote. I don't know if that's been vocalized. Like, they may be doing it, but they have not, like, danced around. They're mm -hmm. dancing around the issue. Yeah, it's a really big gray issue. What exactly is an alliance in the season? Because I'm going to argue this later. The Pagong women, you know, Gretchen, Jenna, and Colleen, flat out say, we're not going to vote for the girls. Or no more girls are going home. How is that not an alliance? We're all voting together. <laughs> like, it's like, so it's like really a gray area. What exactly is an alliance here? Well, but I think that, you're right. But I, I think that, you know, again, when people are treating Survivor as a sport or, or, or they're trying to get some canonical stuff, and I mean, for crying out loud, our podcast is the Survivor Historians, people want to know, when was the first historic alliance for someone to say, we are going to make a voting block of a majority and we are going to vote out everyone that is not with us? It's like that didn't happen, right? Like mm -hmm. things just organically happen. People kind of figure it out as they go. And it's messy just as this season's messy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. That's all we're saying here is just don't take this quite so literally is that, yeah, everyone thinks Richard invented alliances, Richard started them, because that's the only person we ever see explaining it. But I know there's more going on there. So don't take it quite so literally. It's mm -hmm. much more organically things coming together than just one person saying, I'm going to do this, and then everyone just does it. And I mean, would you argue that Richard was the shot caller for most of Toggy? I, I have always argued that Sue was the dominant person in Toggy. But I would agree. Yeah. Right. But if you ask, but if you ask Richard, and it, I think Mark Burnett said this as well, that Richard wanted people to believe that Sue was the shot caller when he really was. So again, like we say with all this stuff, take into account the person who's saying these things. Yeah. And we only see one perspective. You don't right. get 16 different confessionals on every event. You just get the one they choose to show. Right. And, and, and we're sitting here saying, well, we think Sue was the, was the shot caller. We don't know. 
Mm-hmm. We weren't there. Yeah, I'm just basing that on what I know about human nature. And knowing someone like Sue, nobody is dominant over Sue. I just know that about her. There's no way she was second fiddle to anybody ever. But, but you know, maybe you can you can string that along and, 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 and do all those sorts of things. My whole thing is that, you know, we, when we talk about things as canon or when we talk about things that we see and we perceive, I want to make it very clear, and I've said this before on previous podcasts, I don't ultimately know what what happened out there and and what I am commenting on is is the television product that we are consuming but I think people want to look at this like meta thing like beyond the television product like what actually happened out there on the island and it's like we literally can never know unless we had access to the hours upon hours of raw footage and went through everything in succession because even the people, even the survivors, you know, everyone likes to get the survivors on the social media or listen to them on on various podcasts and 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 everything that Rob Sesternino does, which is so wonderful just to 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 hear everybody and their perspective. But it is their perspective, and they can they they know more than we know about what happened out there. But even they don't know absolutely everything. They know the things that they saw, and they know the things that people told them, but they don't know absolutely everything. Nobody can. Yeah, the only capital T truth in Survivor is how many votes a person gets. Uh-huh. Everything else is gray area. Yeah, and that's one thing. I'm not, it's, this is one thing that I've always think is helpful for Survivor fans is to uh, really adapt your critical thinking skills when you think about the show. And I'm not saying that any you know one fan is smarter than another or there's right ways or wrong ways to watch the show, but it's a good instinct to have when the show says, this person's amazing. Try to think of maybe why they're not, to think of the contrary to that. If the show says, this person sucks, they're terrible, try to think of a contrary. Oh, well, actually, they were kind of cool because they did this. And that's just something that I've always tried to do, just because I think it gives you a more third-dimensional way of watching the show from different perspectives. And so this is one thing I've always bristled at when people simplify the, oh, Richard's the only one who understood alliances. I'm like... There's no way that's true. That just does not mesh with human nature. So I always advise people, encourage you to think a little more third dimensionally and try to think why that's not true. Think of all the different variables that went into why people think that way and how we come to that conclusion. That's that's all I'm saying. I just think it's a richer way to watch the show when you watch it that way. My wife commented the other day because, uh, you know, we've been watching a lot more television at home lately. I wonder why. But um <laughs> We've been watching a lot of episodes of the uh, the cooking show Chopped. Uh-huh. You know, it's the mystery basket and you do the rounds, right? And and the thing is, is that my knowledge of, you know, my hours and hours of watching Survivor and reality television, my wife looked at me and said, does it hurt for the fact that you can't watch a show normally anymore? <laughs> because, you know, you, you, look at, you look at the editing things and it's like, you know, you watch a person – make start to make their food for the round and then all of a sudden they the the camera will pan to one of the mystery box ingredients on their station and it is unused and over on their station and they'll just linger on it for a split second and keep going and the thing is is that you immediately know from that one shot that person is going to not put that ingredient on their plate at the end of the round right and and like you you start listening to the confessionals you listen to what people say because they're telegraphing certain things or you can see someone like setting up a hubris for a fall and it's like you don't root for people but you can just look at things and go this person's going to go out here this person's going to forget this ingredient this person's going to do this and my wife is and for the most part i'm right like sometimes i'm wrong because hey things happen and i don't not everything is everything but my wife is like you you can like interpret the show 
as it goes. And it's like, that's what's happening. They're creating a television show. They're showing you little clues along the way. And this narrative of Richard invented alliances is what Survivor wants you to see. Because it's storytelling. It's storytelling. It may not be what actually happened, but that's their story. Because at the end of the day, who's going to win the season? And if you want to perpetuate, like, why Survivor is a great game and a great show, again, not a game show, but a great game and a great show, who better to serve as the representative of that than the winner of your season, especially when you hear him say, like, I did this thing that ended up carrying me to the final four. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I agree with you 100%. That is, I agree with that. But there's there will come a time in a couple episodes where probes will start selling out Richard in his narrative. It's very interesting how they portray him later. There's one scene in particular, I forget what episode is, five or six, where in the recap, Jeff says, last week on Survivor, the Alliance reared its ugly head. Mm-hmm. Like, really? Like that's that's so if you're wondering why people hated the Toggy Alliance, it's because Probes wants you to. It's or the producers do. I don't know how much Probes was behind it, but it's like they're they're sending very mixed messages on what you should think about Richard Hatch here. All right, let's we'll get to that in a second. Let's go through this challenge. So this is the one where they have to do the uh SOS challenge, and before that we get a scene where I forgot how much Ramona content is in this episode. I always forget that Ramona's even there at this point in the season. Well, because she's, she's, I mean, like, according to Pagong, like, she's already dead man walking. She's just taking up room in the hut, as Bibi said. (laughs) Taking up space. Uh, But yeah, so she, because she basically, like, is just observing when everyone's working. She, you know, everyone's like, oh, she's in over their head. Jervis tries to, like, talk some sense into her. uh, And then the next day, she does work harder. I mean, the title of this episode is going to be Too Little, Too Late. So that gives you all the signaling you need to know to Jay's point as to how Ramona is going to ultimately end up doing here. Yeah, although shout out to the producers and the cinematographers here. There's a beautiful shot of Ramona just not being a part of Pagong. She's missed her mark. She was sick. She's not part of a clique. And there's a wonderful shot of her staring at the beach and the sunset, just kind of standing by herself and the sad music plays. Like, this is a sad episode. I always kind of forget that. Okay, now we go to the challenge where they build the, they're building the SOS signal, and, and Toggy really wins quite easily because they use A, color, and two, movement. Mm-hmm. And Pagong just builds a smiley face, and it's, like, not even close. And so Toggy wins, you know, the big plane flies and drops off the crate. And James, and I believe James uh, then responds, right? He says, like, I'm still waiting for that plane to come around. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be here in about 15, 20 minutes, I think, I reckon. Also, why does Jeff specifically give the on-island time to us as 10, 11 a.m.? <laughs> like, we don't need to know that. You're not our concierge, Jeff. <laughs> this show is sponsored by the time 10, 11 a.m. I didn't know Times could sponsor a show. <laughs> but yeah, so the talking... Is this Sesame Street? Was it also sponsored by a letter? Yes. The, the color purple and the letter B. Considering how Dr. Sean votes, maybe that, that was a sponsorship. <laughs> Yeah, so Toggy wins, and this is where Richard gets the fishing knife. So now he has a spear and the knife, and he does the great power move where he takes the knife, straps it to his ankle, and says, this is where you'll find it every minute of the game now. <laughs> so Richard's got a lot of power here, and Pagong loses the challenge. Like like we said, the, the Burnett craps on him in the book for not really taking it seriously. And Colleen even says, I thought the smiley face was dumb. This sucks. We don't get our spice rack. And Ramona is just on a spiral of depression now. This sucks even more. She's having a hard time. But now we're going to go back to Toggy. And here comes a very important segment in this season, the Alliance, where they first talk about the formation of the Alliance. And like you were, you were sort of talking about, 
the way it's outlined is very matter of fact. I mean, Kelly even says just like very simply, the more people who are going to vote for somebody else, you might as well go with that. And I mean, that's going to come back very much so near the end when she decides that she does not want to vote the way of other people. Uh, and we see here, you know, it's a little bit of a Mandela effect. I think everyone remembers like, oh, yeah, the Toggy Four formed. No, no, no. We had our initial three musketeers, Kelly, Sue, and Richard, that were all on board. But Rudy actually denies the first offer to be in the alliance. Yeah, from the way it's presented in the episode, again, who knows what the truth is. Rudy is not really in the alliance until the fifth episode. It's really just these three, the three musketeers. Although I love pointing again, I just love throwing different interpretations of survivor history at you. I love Richard's quote here. If you'd like to ask why I always say Richard didn't invent alliances, where Richard flat out says, alliances have formed and I didn't even have to do much about it, mm-hmm. which Leno lends credence to the thing that this just kind of organically happened. And he wasn't like the mastermind that designed these things. They just sort of happened. And Richard in his own words even says that. But yeah, R- Rudy is not part of this alliance at first. It's just the three of them and Rudy much to his credit. And this will go a long way to why people thought Rudy was so beloved at the time. The audience loved Rudy is that Rudy says, I don't like alliances. I don't like ganging up on people. I'm not going to do it. I don't agree with that mindset. And so people will say, well, how come Rudy wasn't hated like the rest of the Toggy Four? Well, right there, he says, everyone else is gleefully ganging up on people. Rudy says, I don't play that way. That's not fair. He will go into it later just because he realizes he's going to get voted for if he doesn't. But he holds out for a long time. Mm-hmm. Because I think that the way it happened was is I think people at the beginning, they didn't look at this as like a, a game for sport, right? Like we, we, we didn't know what we were looking at, right? And that, that's the whole thing that we need to really get across. It's not like we had this like wonderful concept of what the game of Survivor was as it was going. We were forming our opinions on it just as, as the show was going as well. And I think that we sort of got this idea. We were going along with sort of what Pagong was saying. What Rudy says here is that if you do a voting block, then then you just get the vote every time. And that doesn't seem fun or fair. And I would argue he's not wrong. I agree with him. It's not the smart way to play, but it is. it would be more interesting to watch. That was the argument at the time. Yeah, so it's really the three of them, the three musketeers against the world. We get a shot of Sue and Richard and Kelly high-fiving and laughing gleefully. And they say, you know, Kelly says, I want Rudy in here. At least he's honest. Like, I don't like him all the time, but he's blunt and he's honest. She goes, I don't trust Sean and Dirk. They're lazy. They're shifty. And so this is really how it's all going to form. It's really just who can you trust? And those two are not trustworthy. Rudy is. So, you know, pragmatically, we'd rather have him here. At least he's going to tell you what he's going to do. One of the things I always wonder is like, what if it was flipped with Stacy and Rudy here? Because now what really turns is the major conflict within Tagi is these four against the two guys, mm-hmm. against Dirk and Sean. Like, I feel like if Stacy and Sue could get over their differences, then Stacy would have been a fine fourth, mem- you know, person in that group because she was against those two other guys. Yeah, that's that's a wonderful question but there's no way stacy and stacy and sue get over that i don't know i i would say the very next round sue is like no we're getting rid of stacy and so and then and from that point the three of them kelly rich and sue would just you know rule over those two guys and the question would be if someone like dirk makes the merge what the hell is that situation like especially if he's getting along with the much younger pagongs i can imagine Mm -hmm. that it's maybe less of a clean-cut scenario than we initially think Uh, i'm like the merger Ah, sorry. Can we talk about the one extra variable there that no one has really talked about yet? 
if Rudy is not in the alliance, if it's just the three of them and they need a fourth, because that's the thing, you need to be the final four. I think, and I've always thought that Sean is the one that would have been in the alliance at some point. Maybe not. Sean is not going to obviously be part of an alliance because he doesn't want to be a bad guy on TV. But Mike, having read the book, you know there's a very important variable here a lot of people don't know about, and that is Richard's obsession and crush and lust for Mm -hmm. Sean. Yeah, there's a, I believe it's one of the, he's separated into days, and one of the days opens with Richard waking up from a sex dream that he had about Sean. And so when it gets to episode five, and they're trying to figure out should they vote off Sean or Dirk, Richard's getting very nervous because he doesn't want to get rid of Sean, but he also wants to appease his alliance. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, he's going to have a crush on him that legitimately does make him a bit more emotionally clouded. I also do think, and this is, again, in an alternate universe, but as they were approaching the merger in episode six, Richard was actually eyeing a bit of a cross-tribal alliance. He was aiming to bring Gretchen over to mm-hmm. work with them, but he also didn't know that Gretchen was you know, one of the more anti-alliance uh, people out of the group of Pagongs. Yeah, I just wonder if they'd show... Again, this is all in Burnett's book, and it's a huge subplot that Richard constantly has the hots for Sean, is trying to protect him, wants him around just for his own edification. You know, he loves looking at Sean every day. And again, it's all over the book, and you never see it in the episode. I would have loved 10-year-old Paul being forced to watch that subplot on TV, Richard's sex dreams about Sean. Uh, Yeah. Um... (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll stick to the you know bowel movement and nipple ring. They, <laughs> those were enough. Yeah, but again, we're not making this up. This is all over the book, and Burnett talks about what a huge subplot it was. Richard's lust for Sean. It's very important, and it you'll notice it later in the season. Richard's trying to constantly protect Sean, and it kind of explains it, although they don't spell it out in the episodes. And also, I mean, it brings some interesting background to like their spats as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's this idea of like were things of a different orientation it would be like the romantic comedy thing of like they can't get along they're constantly fighting but damn if that doesn't make them more attracted to each other yes. and you know the internet was writing slash fic about this at the time all the sean and richard stories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> although probably greg greg and richard would have been the more slash ficky but anyway so let's move on to a different relationship the ramona and jenna stuff we get a lot in this episode, a lot of character stuff about Ramona has never had a white friend before and does not trust white people. And she and Jenna are very close here. And it's a very interesting subplot that Ramona is finally starting to become part of the group. Jenna is like li- liaison. And Jenna is heartbroken because she knows she might have to vote Ramona out and Ramona doesn't realize this yet. Well, and yeah, I was watching a lot of the the um, Ramona's casting tapes going into this and her interviews and stuff and you can definitely tell that's why they wanted to bring her in because she was someone she talked a lot about in her um, um, her finals interviews and stuff. She was talking about how she went to Howard, which was an all-black school, and how it was really important for her in high school. She never um, really connected with her identity, so it was important with her to be around um, other intelligent black people. But now she works in this job where she's like one of it's like one of four um, black people on this team of like a hundred people, and she said something about talk about surviving. And so she was very like I feel like that was a, a topic they wanted kind of to explore with her, and never really got the chance because of her bad start to the game and her her early exit from the game. And you can imagine then why she was placed on the same tribe as Jervis. Right. So it's sort of like almost they have an inherent bond, like they're going to vote together in this episode. Jervis is the one to tip off Ramona of like, hey, just so you know, you're being perceived as someone who's the weakest member of our tribe. I feel like 
to sort of add on to your point, Paul, something that unfortunately also gets sort of sidelined because Ramona only lasts a couple rounds in the game and because most of it deals with her being sick is her relationship with Jervis, which you could argue is almost bordering on like what we saw from V and Sean to a certain extent in season four. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And again, it, it, I agree with you. I think they expected this to be more of a prominent storyline. But again, Ramona's just negated so early. She never really has a chance. And we see a little in this episode. And again, I, I like this episode. This is my favorite of the first four episodes by far. And yeah, we get a lot of the heart here where, you know, Ramona's starting to come around and, and Gretchen and Jervis are even saying, you know, they're, she's really trying, but it's just too late. It's like, it's, we, we love the contribution she's making. It's just going to be too late and you can see it coming. And if they go to tribal council, it's probably going to be her. And uh, here we go. We're going to go right into the immunity challenge here. Beach relay. Beach relay. Okay. This challenge I don't think is all that interesting. This is where, for people who haven't seen it in a while, everybody has a different task, a runner, a digger, a rower, blah, blah, blah. Smasher. But a what? Yeah, smasher. Yes. <laughs> so is Ramona a smasher or not a smasher? Did we determine that? Well, no, I believe Richard is a smasher because he finally realizes he has to smash the bottle instead of trying to pull it out. <laughs> okay. There's no shade to Ramona, but she kind of ended up being a Lamina, so I don't know if that's a smasher or not. <laughs> but, Sorry, Ramona. Yeah, this is a boring challenge, and again, Toggy wins, and they get to the end, and then this is going to set up Ramona being voted out in a little bit because Toggy wins the immunity, but... In Mark Burnett's book, he loves this oh challenge. My God. Oh, he, man. So talk about that, Mike. So he specifically salivates over Richard and Rudy digging the chest out of the sand. Because uh, he talks about there's this moment when Richard realizes what he has to do. He hands Rudy the chest, knowing that this is his moment of glory, his time in the spotlight, his time to prove that he's not a weak link like people thought he was last round. And Rudy sprints like it's his first day of basic training all the way to the end and brings it over to the platform. Like He does a great job of painting a picture of a challenge that, like you said, Mario, is while interesting in that they're not all doing one task, the, the it really comes down to the choices that they make, is pretty much a blowout. Yeah, and that's the one section of the book I always remember. Again, I haven't read this book in like 10, 12 years, but I remember that section because Burnett talks about the little things that Richard Hatch was good at that maybe doesn't come up in the episode or on camera and explains why he wins. And he says right here, he knows that Rudy needs a big moment. Rudy has not had a win in this season up to this point. He's been an old man. He's out of touch. He's cranky. They don't really get along with him. But Richard knows that Rudy needs a big moment to be the hero where the Toggies will rally around him because we need to get Rudy in the alliance. We need to get him to feel like he belongs. So he sets it up. So at the end of the challenge, Rudy gets to carry the treasure chest over the finish line and everyone will celebrate and swarm around Rudy and hug him. And Burnett is like, that's the little stuff Richard was good at knowing that Rudy needs a win. And I I love that, just that writing. I just think that's so cool to think of the game in that perspective that he knows Rudy needs to feel like he belongs. Rudy will be part of the alliance maybe later down the road. But you can see it in the episode because Boy, do they have fun with the heroic Survivor music during Rudy's sprint to the finish here. They just love it. And they didn't show, actually, but I believe at the end, uh, Toggy all put a hand on Rudy and started running around in a circle, waving their arms. (laughs) Yes. But it's a big moment. And again, this is, again, it's not really that significant a challenge, but the music and the production values are so cool at the end of this challenge and in the lead up to it when they're all trash talking each other. Like, uh, what is it? Sue's like, we're going to stomp them so bad. And Colleen's like, I wouldn't say that we're cocky. I'd just say that we're the best. 
like there's a lot of antagonism here going on. I just this segment is produced really well, and you can see the show is getting more and more confident with their storytelling, their narratives, their music. This this is a really strong stretch, I think, right here from a TV point of view. We're gonna stomp them. We're gonna stomp them real bad, Terry. <laughs> yes, Terry unleashing hell even in season one. I also just love their obsession um, when they explain this challenge like they've done every time. Uh, I need two people up here to come see the map. And they just send one person up here to look at the map. <laughs> it's like this thing they're very much obsessed with. Yeah, they really love like tributes, right? They love ambassadors of like only one person will be able to have this job. Yes. The minutia is always very fun to explain. Where you fast forward many seasons down the road, just like, all right, we did a pick them. Here's the teams. Like in season one, you're the captain. You will select for, they would lay out every little step so you'd see it. In season, they've way fast forward through everything in the later seasons. Well, but you can see why, because they're trying to create narratives, right? Yeah. You know, you just talked about Mark Burnett talking about the heroic, you know, you know, the, the heroic march, last march of the ends that is Rudy Bosch getting the, uh, uh, treasure chest cross finish line, but you know they're trying to create narratives. Whereas with with more modern seasons of Survivor, all of the twists and in the in the individual things, like they're all individual sort of tokens that they get right, and and that's that's your moments, that's your narrative, right? Like they have they have just inherent narratives. Whereas right now they're trying to make some. Yeah, and that's the thing uh, that this challenge I think also was trying to instigate as well, right? Is like. There, the treasure chest leg was the only leg that had more than one person on it. So theoretically, you could say, like, well, we lost because of the broken bridge. That was Colleen's fault, so Colleen gets the blame. It's this ability to really foist blame onto someone where if you happen to have need a reason to vote someone out, that's a very easy way to do it to the point where when we get back to the challenge from the tribal, uh, from the challenge, Jenna you know, is really putting a lot of blame on herself and Gretchen, feeling like we lost it for the team. Yeah, no, it's there's a lot going on in this scene. I just I just love it. Again, from a TV point of view, this is as good as season one gets. There's a lot of cool stuff. Like when Pagong loses, they play all the sad music and show them, you know, crying and consoling each other. Yeah, and there's again, a weird, there's a really interesting effect when they get back to camp or like they do, uh, they focus on the B-roll, the nature shots, but they do these like dramatic overlays of all the Pagongs mm-hmm. in very like staged shots, but it looks really sad it's it's this idea of you know as we talked about like even though ramona is on the outs bb was the one who took out like a sore thumb he's gone and you really become we all become paul losselson in that moment because we realize like oh yeah these are a fam these are families that are being built out on the island and like now that family has to be broken up there are no more black sheep yeah but i do remember from the book mark burnett's book he was very critical of the pagongs here because they talk a big game, you know, we're better than the game, we're the cool tribe, we're fun. But when it comes time to finally vote out one of their own, this is the first time they've really had to vote out a person who's one of them. They all wear face paint to tribal council. And Burnett is very critical of them in the book. He calls them cowardly, that it's like they're hiding behind masks to vote somebody mm-hmm. out. And he's like, at least the Toggies understood they could, that tough things had to be done. The Pekongs are so cowardly, they must wear a mask as if it's not them doing the voting. Yeah, well, it also doesn't help that Greg compares the game to Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot about that. So this is the sad montage where Pagong finally has to vote out one of their own. It's very sad, and they're all give their little thoughts. I don't want to vote anybody out. We're all friends. You know, Ramona's doing so so much now, and they're all we're like family. And then we end with Greg undercutting everything by saying, it's like the board game. We're all friends, but you got to beat someone. Sorry. Got to knock them out. Land on their tile. Sorry. 
So Greg perhaps is not the most ideal Pagong for the narrative Burnett wants to tell. <laughs> so yeah, we'll go to tribal council here. And this is a very sad scene. And again, to undercut what I said in the first one, that's the hallmark of Survivor up to a certain point. Every vote out is sad. You feel horrible. These are tragic events. Someone gets humiliated and shunned on national TV. And it's one thing I've never been able to accept in modern seasons, that someone getting voted out is exciting or hilarious. Like, I don't like that. Ramona is one of the saddest boots of this season. That being said, it's not the only storyline of this episode. And in episode six, we're going to get Colleen, like, really musing out loud of, like, Jervis is like Teflon. He can say anything, and for some reason, nobody's going to get mad at him and try to vote him out. And it happens here where, like, Jeff outright tells Jervis, you have weak performances and several challenges. And then Jeff does, like, a show of hands. Who feels like they're guaranteed to survive tonight? And Jervis is the only one to raise his hand and makes everybody laugh, and Jeff kind of calls him out on it. And then Jeff asks if anyone's feeling vulnerable tonight, and Jervis immediately raises his hand, <laughs> and everybody laughs. I'll admit that one made me laugh, though. Jer Jervis can be a very humorous guy i think that was a, a funny moment of him realizing that him declaring he was too cocky actually made him vulnerable if i did the funny 115 over again that should have been an entry that's some i, I don't know why i didn't do that one that's a great moment jervis with a quick flip-flop now paul did you like jervis as a 10 year old was he one of your favorites um i feel like i very easily followed the narrative of people saying like oh he's lazy he's kind of cunning he like gets he's you know, he slides by and stuff like that. So I don't know that I was a huge fan of him until it was, he was an underdog after the merge. So until he was sitting duck, until yeah. he was a or sitting duck. Was, then... was, was he sitting duck or was he, he was target? The other one? He was first bullseye and then target. Right. And then, okay, that was a Colleen was sitting duck, but I feel like, I feel like at some point, like in school, those like, like stuff came up about that. Like, well, like what, what do words or phrases like those mean? Is it actually a sitting duck? Is that actually a target? Like, I feel like there was some connection to this and I totally rocked it because I watched the show. <laughs> now, Paul, did your mom have to explain what a black person was? No. Okay. Just checking. Now I can just imagine Paul being like, all right, guys, then let me tell you about bowel movements. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing I just wanted to bring up is all kidding aside. Jervis was incredibly popular just strike any knowledge of him and blood versus water out of your mind that has no relevance on Borneo. Borneo, or Jervis was incredibly popular in all these, you know, segments when Colleen's saying he's Teflon, you can't vote him out, he's charming. And in Burnett's book, he said the same thing, that Jervis was amazing because he was so charming and likable, and he didn't even have a strategy. He's just like, they won't vote me out because they like me. And Burnett mm -hmm. was very, he loved Jervis. That's specifically why he cast him. They loved him in Burnett's in the second book, The Australian Outback, he talks about the 16 types of players and how everyone approaches the game differently. He calls Jervis the joker or the slacker, how it's impossible to vote them out. And Jervis was like the prototype. And Burnett is like, someday a slacker will win Survivor. And Fabio was like, hold my beer. I'll be, I'll, I'll be there in a couple seasons. But yeah, Jervis was incredibly popular, big fan favorite at the time. And you can see in this scene why he's so incredibly likable and he somehow avoids political hits. Yep, as we'll very much see in episode six. Yeah. And with that, we lose Ramona. Very sad vote. They really have to do a mercy killing on the one person who socially never fit in. And the music is terrible. And Jenna, like, holds her head. And we even see Jenna voting for her one black friend saying too little, too late. And it looks like it really tears Jenna up. She feels bad. And it's really just one of the sadder moments of the season for, ironically, one of the characters you don't remember that well. Well, she's kind of our first character of, you know, she just, 
you could see the the potential in the character that she is just you know with with the with 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 her perspective that she's bringing to the game but also the fact that she's young she's athletic she's smart you know there the sky's the limit there but she's also unfortunately the first person in a long list of people on survivor who get a bad start because they get sick or they get hurt or something happens right off the bat and those first few days are so clutch to you know building mm-hmm. Uh, relationships in, in society and if you're just puking your guts out the entire time you just don't have that opportunity to do so yeah i mean they were looking for a reason it was almost like again we go back to that rudy bosch commentary like bb was the easy first boot now it's almost like they default back to day one of like we just need a reason uh ramona looks a little weak and even though she tried to pick it up everyone else had been doing their pulling their fair weight so she's easy to go but i think it, maybe it's less so about the person who went and more so about the feeling she produced when she left. Cause that does have a seismic feeling on the Pagongs. Uh, and I, th- I do think that plays to a certain extent into episode six where, you know, maybe it's this idea of like Jenna saying, okay, I got someone out who I loved. Let me go after somebody who I am not a big fan of, even if, you know, it, it might uh, not necessarily play well for us in the long run. Mm-hmm. Now I, I want to bring up one thing because Ramona is a hard character for me to judge because there's not a lot of content. She doesn't give a lot of confessionals. I know she's sick. She's never had a white friend. She's kind of mopey. Did she give a lot of interviews? And I will turn this to our stump, the expert here, Paul. What, what, what was Ramona like in interviews and stuff outside the show? Do you remember? Mike, didn't she, she resurfaced like in the RTP community. Was it last year, a couple years ago? Yep. Last year. So uh, T-Bird had begun to do a bunch of interviews with old school survivor players just to like catch up on what they're doing. Uh, Gretchen did one and I believe Ramona popped up. Ramona's actually been around. She's since the um, survivor alumni base has built a lot in Philadelphia. She has been a part of that. So she's been hanging Mm. out with like Wendell and Bryce Isaiah. And she actually hangs out a lot with Jervis as well. So they are, they're still definitely tight. Okay. Yeah, I just, I've, everything like, and I, I don't have that much of hearing it. Like every people who talk about Ramona, who are with the show, they always say. I think Gretch talked about it too in her, in her recent interview that she said she really wishes Ramona would have another chance and that she'd be willing to do it because they say like she's just a very highly intelligent, successful person who just really had a bad start and then never recovered. Yeah, and she's kind of the forgotten member of the cast in Borneo when you think yeah. about it, which is a shame because like everybody else became a star, even Dirk to an extent. Like they all were minor stars. Ramona, you never heard a thing about. So I always felt bad she did not. Again, she wasn't involved in the drama probably with the Stacey Stillman stuff and the lawsuits, but she was never really a star like the rest. So yeah, it's, I always feel bad because she seems like she's a cool person. I just don't know her. All right, you guys ready to go through the Dirk episode? We got time for that? Yeah. Yeah. All right, we can probably do one more episode. We'll see. So episode five starts, and again, this is, you know, I I give Probst and the show crap when we get to Micronesia because Probst is steering the narrative in the previously on segments. I didn't realize he was doing it as early as season one. Well, this is this is the uh, the the tapioca montage, right? We just have Sue say it like fifteen times. Yeah, it is the tapioca montage, but we also see. Last week on Survivor, Jeff says a cunning plan was developed by Kelly, Sue, and Rich. Like, they start painting this as some evil mastermind thing. And he, he will keep going with that. So, again, Probst is doing that early on where he's not just saying, oh, an alliance was formed. No, he has to start narrating it's evil and cunning. So just pay attention to that. He's steering the way that people responded to this. Something weird that I noticed starting in this episode that I didn't before, but again, it's such a small detail of 
little touches they made production-wise along the way. Did you guys notice that they spell out the numbers in the lower third with the days? Oh, I never noticed that. Yeah, they spell they spell them out as words rather than putting the numbers in. As someone who still took spelling tests when this was airing, I did notice that. <laughs> I would hope so, Paul. I'd be shocked if you hadn't noticed that. Yeah, it's, it's not like, again, strange. It's just weird to see, like, day 13 spelled out, you know, almost filling, like, half the screen because it's so long. <laughs> it's grammatically correct, Mike Bloom. That's the way our teachers taught us. That's true, actually. I mean, we have not, we have yet to get to past day 20, but I do wonder once the merger hits, if they're going to, because that's the typical grammar way, right? Is mm-hmm. like after 20, you can then shrink it back to the, the the numerical perspective. I wonder if they'll do the same thing or if day 30-5 is going to be, you know, at the bottom during the penultimate episode. I would have liked if they would have had Sue try to spell out the words for the na- the numbers. Oh, no. <laughs> day 30 fro. Well, to be fair, we talked about how she doesn't know what day it is anyway. <laughs> All right, so episode five is the Dirk episode, and it's it's it, there's some cool stuff in this one, even though, again, Dirk is kind of forgettable as well. But the overall sense in this episode is everyone feeling down. Pagong just voted out one of their own. They're very bummed. Um, Greg has his ear infection. Now, this is not mentioned much in the, in the episodes, but I remember in the book it's a major subplot that Greg is always out sleeping in the jungle. He doesn't sleep with mm-hmm. the people, and somehow because he's laying on the ground, he gets all sorts of bacteria and critters crawling on him, and he somehow gets an ear infection. And it was, like, incredibly bad to the point that he kind of checked out for a while because he was not feeling well at all. Yeah, I mean, we get a little bit here where he said he's feeling super sick, but it doesn't go into length about his actual condition. And, yeah, Burnett goes into that a little bit where, again, you know, just when we thought Jennifer from Survivor Co. Wrong had things crawling out of her ear, no, Greg had it before. I don't know if it was, like, some sort of leech or some sort of like Star Trek Wrath of Khan parasite. But yeah, we get a little bit of Greg in this episode, though, right? With like the Papa Bird stuff of him building a nest in the jungle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll get that later. Okay, so Pagong is down because they had to vote out Ramona. Toggy is up. They're on a kind of a winning streak. They're doing well. They kind of have the alliance. The only one who's the ones who are not doing well are Dirk and Sean. And that's just kind of because, as Kelly points out, Toggy has broken down into a workers versus non workers division and Dirk and Sean don't do crap. They just pretend they do. And that's why they're going to be on their outs, basically on the outs, the rest of the game. Although we do see this is Kelly in one of a survivor first and maybe a survivor only. She's sewing in the middle of her confessionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's making the rowdy Rudy's diner sign. <laughs> and let's see. So they Sue is infuriated because Dirk and Sean never produce anything. They just go out and fish and lay on the raft. She's like, go hunt for tapioca, blah, blah, blah. And Sean says, you know, Sue reams me out every day. She hates my guts. He's like, I have a temper too, but I don't really lash out at people. Again, Sean is super nice. He will not confront people. He will not be part of this. And Sue just lays into him every chance she gets. I do like um, Sean is... I don't think his excuse here one-ups that this is an overfished area from the first couple episodes, but he does have another excuse here of, like, the fish are not biting out here. Either we have the wrong bait or we're going at the wrong time. (laughs) And then it just immediately cuts through of, like, yeah, I don't think this is useless. Why are they doing that? But, yeah, that's the split. It's pretty obvious. It's the four of them against... Sean and Dirk, and even again, even though Rudy's not in the alliance, he is a worker bee, apparently, according to them. Nobody bitches about him anymore. But we do get Rudy, a confessional that was quoted all the time, the Bible one, where Dirk is reading the Bible, and he says it brings him spirituality, he loves reading, and Rudy says, look, I'm religious too, but the only reason to bring a Bible out here is maybe for toilet paper. (laughs) 
It is notable that Dirk does leave his Bible behind, but luckily Rudy does not use it as toilet paper. He has that much, you know, uh, temptation. Uh, You know, he's he's able to stay away from that ability, at least on national television. All right, so we'll get to the uh, challenge here, the reward challenge. And this one's fun because in another first and maybe only time in Survivor history, we see probes walking to their camp (laughs) and nailing up the tree mail physically so they can read it. (laughs) Oh my god, it's so weird. And he like hangs around like he has to read it off as well. It like it's it's like an in-person tree mail. So interesting. I feel we're not letting Jay and Paul talk. Do you guys have anything to comment on this section? It's just me and Mike ping-ponging. I was enjoying that actually. <laughs> yeah, I Jay was on, is on mute. Yeah. I was on mute. I, I was just hanging I was, out. I was like thinking about linking something with using the Bible as toilet paper and a bowel movement, and then I decided against it. And so um Well, it's weird. Yeah. I guess I can comment on that because I, I was going to maybe jump in on that. But, you know, when Rudy has this weird thing where Rudy still thinks, I think, in terms of, of survival, right? Mm-hmm. In the sense of like, you know, he clearly knows he's on TV. He clearly knows there's cameras and whatnot. But I think Rudy is still not totally understanding every concept of everything. And so there's still this survivor survival element to Rudy. And, you know, he was a Navy SEAL. Like, you know, this is a thing that he did, which was, you know, braving elements and just being – uh, very resourceful with your environment. And so he's just basically like, I don't know why you have a book unless it's toilet paper. Cause you know, why would you bring a book somewhere? It's extra weight. And it's, it's really funny because a lot of people who do live in the woods and have very, very minimal possessions. One of the possessions they do have is a small works of library, like, like the works of Shakespeare mm-hmm. or something like that, because you know, that, that, that engagement of reading and, and activating your mind and reading words actually is something that can like drive off insanity in a lot of ways. So in a lot of ways, Dirk having a Bible is a very good thing. And the Unabomber even wrote a book. Mm-hmm. Oh, Uncle Ted. <laughs> Sorry, um, Paul. I know that's too soon for Montana. If we jump back to the, um, uh, about the, the live in person, awkward, uh, uh, tree mail. Can we also talk about like the worst name ever? Like it's so clunky for him to say, like, what is the web, the, Weapons, the war. What is, the first annual weapons target shooting classic of Borneo. Yeah, the battle in Borneo. It's like a pause and the battle in Borneo. Yes. I I love how everything is the first ever. It's like it. I mean, this is also coming from the um the time when they would put two thousand at the end of everything because it was the year two thousand. But I just love that they're like it's the first ever this. It's the first ever that, and then we never follow up on these things. You know, we see the. The second ever weapons target shooting classic, the battle in Panama in All-Stars, but that's it. It can't be the second annual if it was four years later. That's true. Uh, But we do, I mean, we do see, you know, as Jeff calls it, the mighty slingshot appearing (laughs) elsewhere. But otherwise, this thing is pretty much done. All right, so here we go. We're going to go through the F-A-W-T-S-C-O-B the first annual Battle of Borneo. And this Can you is imagine, where... though, like, Jeff Probst talked about how, like, you know, he's trying to establish himself as a host on this show and trying to find his way, and, you know, there was, like, Burnett or some producers like, yeah, go to camp, nail it up, talk to him. It'd be great. <laughs> is this a good time to point out that on the message boards at the time, the number one thing people made fun of was Jeff Probst back in the day? Man, did they love to mock him on the message boards. I mean, it makes sense. They're kind of sort of having him do these, like, chintzy things, like nailing up a tree mail like he's hanging up a wanted poster for robin hood or something <laughs> yeah. jeff's gonna find his way and he's gonna find his way quickly i and i and i would almost you know to compliment jeff probst i would i would say that by the end of the show jeff has put 
starting to put a stamp on on what he is and, and where he is. And I think uh, the exclamation point on that is the when he holds it up and says, Jay, for Jenna, you're like, you've got it, Propes. You understand mm-hmm. what, what this is. But, you know, these early parts, he's finding his way, too. So I, I find, you know, you as a viewer, you're latching on to the contestants, right? Because the contestants are the moving pieces, the people you relate to, the real world. They're in the house. They're doing the things. They're in the camps. Whereas Jeff is this facilitator. And I mean, he doesn't have a whole thing like he's there. He's ready, set, go. He's explaining things. We see him in the in the prepackaged things about tree mail and this, that. And, and, and you know, they, we have the conch shell for the One Tribal Council. Like, Jeff has not figured this out yet because they haven't figured it out yet. So he's very easily mockable because he doesn't have a place yet. Yeah, and to be fair, he's being handed a lot of very clunky dialogue to try to say. Yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> like not all Morgan, his fault. Yeah, Morgan right? Freeman could not pull this off. <laughs> it's not all his fault. But, you know, when you're like, well, he's he's being mocked a lot. And it's like, well, naturally, he's the target, you know? <laughs> no, he's the bullseye. He's the bullseye. I also feel like, again, you know, at the time, this show was a little bit murkily viewed as a game show. And I do feel like game show hosts are sort of like ripe for mocking, right? It's this ability of like, oh, this like dressed up persona saying these cheesy things. So unfortunately, he served as like a beacon for that. But some of you heard of this before. For this challenge, you're going to pick one person to do each stage of it. (laughs) One person's going to do a thing and whoever does the most things wins. Yeah, and it's funny because um, for people who have not seen it in a while, this is the Battle of Borneo. There's three. It's a little, uh, what's the word when there's three events, not a decathlon. I I forget the word. Triathlon. Triathlon, thank you. (laughs) I should know that. A uh, Triwizard Tournament. Oh, wait, sorry. (laughs) Ew, sports. Oh, so anyway. So, so yeah, there's three events. There's the blowgun, the mighty slingshot, and the spear of Heracles as they must throw these things at fruit, basically, and spear them. And they all get weapons to practice. And we find out that Rich is a natural with a slingshot. Sean's good with the blowgun. And Sue is amazing with the spear. And this is the one of the more quotable things in season one. My wife still loves this quote. She always laughs when she hears it. That It's not so much that Sue wants to win this event, that she knows she's going to be against a guy, and she wants to dog some guy on national TV. <laughs> I love Sue, Anis, just like the uh, between the foreplay and the go wild, and now hoping to dog some guy on national dog, TV. Stomping and again, back to we talked about it in the last episode about this like concept of national TV. You know, everyone's watching it nationally at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's a big deal. Although we can, there's a great edit here where she's like, I wanna I wanna dog some guy on national TV. It'd be great to embarrass someone. And we immediately cut to Pagong where yep. Joel is getting the heroic music and and they announce him. Right? Doesn't is it who announces? Yeah, Jervis. Jervis is a really funny. He goes weighing in at two. Excuse me, he lost twenty pounds. One eighty. Big country, all American, the world's strongest man. And Joel has like. Sort of like the, the Rooney music from him carrying the treasure chest last side. this like pulse-pounding music as Joel throws the spear, and then he just completely biffs it. Yeah. Now, we should talk about that because, again, you just read the book, so it's fresh in your mind. This was apparently a very common tactic on Pagong that the other people would sit around and mock Joel. They would call mm-hmm. him – Greg especially started it because Greg hated Joel. And so Greg would call him the strongest man alive, Captain America, Hercules, just knowing he'd puff up Joel and Joel would play along with it. So this was Greg's subtle way of making everyone make fun of Joel. So this was a common tactic they use all the time. And we see it here in the episode as they build him up. They're mocking the ever-loving crap out of him and Joel doesn't realize it. Right, which again, you know, as much as we may get the narrative next episode of like, well, Joel went because of this remark, 
I think it's much more so focused on how Joel is coming across to the rest of the tribe, especially in comparison to Jervis. And this is an example of it. <laughs> yeah. But this is a cool moment because they set up Joel to be the guy dogged on national TV, which is hilarious in a TV narrative way because it doesn't happen. I kind of forget about that. Oh, yeah. If we don't get the Amazon ending here, Joel dogs her. Well, that's interesting, though, because you could also I mean, I think it's an, a delayed dogging because I think the dogging happens at the immunity challenge, which we'll get to. All right. We'll get to that. But but yeah, so um, it's the Battle of Borneo. They all throw their weapons or shoot their weapons at the fruit. And I know in Burnett's book, he talks about how heartbroken they were that it becomes winner takes all because mm -hmm. Gretchen was apparently so good at the slingshot that nobody could match her. And they knew that she would immediately win that and win so much fruit for their tribe. And so when she, you don't see it in the episode, but she apparently does so well, gets all this fruit. And then she finds out it's all up to Joel at the end to win her fruit. And she was heartbroken. Yeah, they, and I think apparently the winner-take-all twist was thrown in at the last second. Originally, it was going to be like, hey, whatever fruit you hit, you get to keep from both tribes. Mm -hmm. So it was more of like a reward challenge for both of them, but they decided to make the stakes a bit bigger. But luckily, Joel does prevail at the end. And I got to say, it's it's produced very well. I love the way they edit the scene with the music and the tension. It's really cool. Did you guys did that stand out to you guys as well? Yes. <laughs> or as if it's a national dogging about to happen. But it's just, if there's a lot of music and suspense, and they, they linger on some of the shots before Joel throws to kind of draw out this tension. It's really, it's a really interesting way of how they made this challenge probably more interesting than it was to watch in person. It's all production value. Do you remember when Russ Landau used to make music for Survivor? <laughs> Those were good times. The before to be times. fair, though, Jay, not to time this thing out too much, but there was a moment in the last Survivor episode where they brought back the classic Russ Landau music, and I was shook. Yeah. You're going to baffle the hell out of people who will listen to this podcast in five years, Mike. No, well, that's when they bring the Russ Landau back, so they're like, yeah, he was always here. <laughs> he was in your mind, your heart, all along. Maybe Russ Landau was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Yes, and we crushed friends in the ratings starting in season two. So anyway, yeah, Pagong wins here. Susan does not dog a guy on national TV, although she comes very close. She has a good throw. He just hits the bullseye and knocks her out. But uh, So the Pagongs win all the fruit. It's a big happy moment. And they also win a surprise reward, three egg-laying chickens, which way they will immediately name breakfast, lunch, and dinner in a nod to Ty, who loves chickens. <laughs> I also love that they initially think, like, it's a pizza or an apple or a Snickers bar. They're just three seasons too early on that. <laughs> Somewhere Zoe's watching at home and she's salivating. Well, she realizes she's going to start applying for the show. <laughs> the Snickers bar did it. Mm-hmm. So Pagong is back on top now. And again, this is one thing I, people, I think people tend to forget about Borneo is that it's very back and forth. It is not just Toggy steamrolls everyone to the end. Pagong goes on a run here, and they start dominating the game, and they're very close to going to the merge 6-4. to four. They just barely missed that advantage by a second in that last immunity challenge in Episode 6, but they're, they're on a high here for a while. To the point where apparently, so they, you know, they, they just, Gretchen wants to kill the chickens ASAP. They decide to hold off and see if they can find some eggs uh, Clarence-style, or I guess anti-Clarence-style, and Pagong is, like, celebrating that they're blowing seeds at each other. It's clear their morale is up. Burnett says in the book that apparently their morale got so far up 
that they started to have a food fight with the fruit that they won. And after a while, Gretchen chastised them, understandably being like, why are you throwing the fruit around and ruining it? Because we could absolutely eat it. We could make a smiley face with it. And also, Paul, trigger word, Jervis, apparently, and this is, uh, Mario, you remember the big chess moment from reading the book. I remember the very first time I read Burnett's book. This one moment particularly stuck out to me for some reason. The fruit made Jervis have his first bowel movement on the island. Ooh, I know what that means now. Um, one quick comment I want to make about this. I've always thought about this about Borneo. It's, it's real. What's, what, what's actually different from Bo- what sticks out from Borneo is in compared to a lot of the early seasons of survivor is in the early days of survivor, you can really track like momentum of certain tribes. That's something that goes away, um, in modern survivor, but there's like really all these times where, you know, like Ogokor is down on their luck and, and when Cooch is up on their luck and when kind of the tides turn, or I mean, even in Africa about Baran getting a, a slow start and obviously the Maramu disaster and, and you kind of have these swings back and forth, but because Borneo is so literally back and forth, back and forth for the first six episodes, it's very hard to track like the, the mood swings. And it feels like, I feel like I, if you, I feel like I can answer a lot of questions about survivor, but if you were to ask me, give me an episode and tell me, is Pug, like and the episode is is Pagong on a high or a low or is Tog on a high or a low? I have to really think about it because it really just goes it goes back and forth like every episode they each have their highs and their lows. Yeah, they're very consistent. They're very good in Borneo with the storytelling. But I did notice that in episode six, like Richard's catching all these stingrays and fish and they're eating well. At the start of the episode six, it's like Toggy is starving trying to find food. I'm like, what? That's not mm-hmm. the story last episode. And speaking of that, this is the scene where Sue is down. It's like she wanted to stomp a guy on national TV, her dream. She, her bloodlust is not satiated. So she goes back Don't to camp. Don't worry, and Kelly will get her revenge soon. Oh, wait, I, never mind. I, I, was lo- I love that. I was just watching that. I'm like, oh, yeah, someone else doesn't get to dog a guy on national TV. But to make up for Sue being down, Richard goes out to catch an eel to cheer her up. And then he burns the eel, and it's inedible. So Richard is not infallible here. He, it's like the worst thing ever, this rubbery eel. Yeah, for some reason I thought I remembered that just the eel itself was not good. But considering, you know, the eels, whether you call them two or three, that Rich caught in that memorable scene in All-Stars, it's just clear that he did not cook it well. It's cartilaginous and too chewy. Yeah, okay. A couple character scenes we're going to go through here to get to the Dirk boot at the end. We have the one... This is the infamous scene, and I know Burnett talks about this a lot in his book, and Colleen and Greg got asked about this a lot at the time. The Colleen and Greg sneaking off to having to have sex and make out scene, which Colleen and Greg both admitted was completely fabricated. They made it up just because they knew it would be good for TV. But in his book, I know Burnett is insinuating they were a couple. And even in the episodes, probes is saying a romance is starting to blossom. But like in real life, there was no romance there at all, correct? Yeah, and I think that, you know, it also, I think to Jay's point about, like, choices that can be made in editing and music, like, Greg reaffirms there's no romance. Colleen says that, you know, Greg reminds me of my friends back home. But I feel like the choice in music and editing style, they really warp it in a way to be like, they might be, what are they fooling us for? Like, they know what's going on here. We know it, too. Yeah, it's, to this day, I mean, I... No, I, I don't remember this specifically. Did not did Greg and Colleen actually date after the show? I think I remember that. I, I feel like they did, right? Paul, do you remember? I um I don't know. I just know the reunion show. Remember they ask about like uh, Colleen's like I live in Miami. He lives in Colorado. And Brian comes like so they don't have planes in either one of those places. <laughs> 
yeah, the the show and the network really wanted to be there, or there to be a romance. And Colleen even said after the season, I just made up that quote because Greg and I knew if you start talking about sex, that'd get on TV. So her set, her quote, oh, it's all about the sex when we sneak off. That's just me being tongue in cheek. But most people took it too literally and didn't realize she's being funny, even though she giggles right after it and laughs. But yeah, that was apparently just them trying to get airtime. But there was no romance during the season at all. But I do believe afterwards they tried to date for a while very quietly and it didn't really work because they didn't have planes apparently all right and now we get the scene with dirk with just being skinny because he's not getting any food but we also get the scene with richard playing with a snake which i always found to be interesting because it's mm-hmm. doesn't really need to be there it's just really just richard playing with a snake there's no point to it well, well is the, or is there a point to it considering the most famous moment from this season you know, wait, wait, he's this, but he's the snake. So it, it kind of, I mean, it kind of makes sense. But what I love about it is that um, when we get to the final five challenge and they're talking about like all the superstitions and they're like, you need to respect the snakes. Joel chased away a snake out of the Pagong tribe. And later that night, his torch was stu- uh, snuffed. I remember my younger brother at that time, he was like really, he was really pretty young. I feel like we were watching it and in, in, um, rewatching it. So it was a little bit later on, but he's like, do you believe that Paul? And I was like, no, do you remember what Richard did in episode four or five, whatever on? Yeah, when he hurls a snake into the water just to watch it swim. <laughs> well, uh, do you remember in the book when Burnett talks about the scene? Because it makes me laugh. Burnett just flat out lies in the book. He said he he says there's a scene where Richard found a yellow banded sea crate on the beach and he started playing with it. And then at the end, Richard leaped back when he realized how hor- or horrified when he realized how poisonous and dangerous it was. I don't remember Richard leaping back horrified at any point in the scene. I remember him picking it up and flinging it into the ocean because he wants to see it swim. But in the book, it's all about how Richard respected nature and he was scared of the snake. (laughs) Yeah, actually, let me read a a quote that Burnett wrote about this. Uh, So basically he's talking about like, uh, the stereotypes around gay people. Richard was showing the lie to those myths. Once Survivor aired, all of America, just like Rudy, would see Richard for being much more than a stereotype. The man was a flat-out, true blue, made-for-TV survivor. At 38, the product of West Point with an adopted nine-year-old son seemed like he prepared his whole life for the experience. Indeed, he had. Survivor was more social survival than physical survival, despite the withering waistlines. It was an arena where hiding your true self Sharing secrets with only trusted friends and existing under constant scrutiny in a tribal environment would determine the winner. No one on the island had lived that life before but Richard Hatch. So maybe there is more symbolism to that too, right? Of like Richard being used to the island to the point where he's able to do this, whereas maybe more people would feel uncomfortable about it. So he's more naturally attuned to the game of Survivor than some of the other people he's competing with. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm just saying they mix up their metaphors when they start comparing this to rats and snakes. When he's the snake flinging a snake into the ocean... And yeah, it's it's, and then they try to portray it later that you have to be nice to snakes or you will not do well. Like, well, Richard flung one into the water. <laughs> anyway, I just it's an interesting scene, and we get Dirk is all skinny, and they're all worried about him, and blah blah blah. This this is kind of a boring section, but we do get up to the challenge here, where it looks like another Toggy woman is going to get a chance to dog a guy on national TV. I can't tell you how like this is just this is just perfect. Like this whole setup <laughs> and everything is perfect. And this is one where like, you know, look, maybe there was producer manipulation, but it doesn't seem like it. And it's one of those things where like this is a gift that has just fallen into your lap. 
Yeah, this is a great scene. I always forget it's the same episode as Sue failing as well. You get a nice parallel. Both of them wanting to dog a guy on national TV, and they both fail. Yeah, though, to be fair, like, Kelly was the one who had the more—I mean, in both cases, it's like the person who feels the more confident and had the more experience just gets completely smoked by the other person. (laughs) Kelly's is more embarrassing. Sue has just more unrequited (laughs) bloodlust. That's the difference. Although, I will ask, we have a bunch of musical theater people here on our show that I am not one of. When they're talking about the tree mail, Greg Buis immediately bursts into a show tune from some Broadway show, and everyone laughs. What, What is he singing here? Uh, something's coming from West Side Story. Yep. Okay, thank you. I was not aware of that. Never do. Which the one snaps? The snaps don't give it away, there, Mario. I assume all musical theater has snaps. You you just watched that uh, the Panthers and Cobra sketch from SNL and assume that's entirely musical theater. <laughs> I that's all theater to me. I just assume like Hamilton is all gang members snapping. I assume that's the same thing. No, but basically it just entirely comes from the fact that like you know they're the the. Pagongs are speculating, like, I wonder what it could be. Like, do you have to, we have to build something out of this? Could swim out? And Greg literally jumps onto the last two words and starts singing. But again, it's very Pagong, right? That they just stand there as Greg launches into a full musical number and everyone just sort of accepts it as their reality. And it's so interesting. <laughs> to quote the great Norm MacDonald, you know, while you were singing, I thought of a new song. It's called, Hey, I was stabbed in the head by a Puerto Rican. <laughs> Sorry, just random SNL quote. Okay, so so basically the premise of this challenge is that it's you need one whitewater river rafting guide to row out and pick people up and bring them back to shore. And hey, guess what? Kelly happens to be a whitewater river rafting guide in real life, and this is what she does for a living. And so she's going to stomp someone on the other team, and they assume, well, Jervis can't swim. Might as well throw him into a boat, and he's never rowed in his life. So the Toggies are all cocky that they're going to win, that Jervis will not do well at this and guess what it's not close at all the other way Jervis destroys her do you think uh maybe they were so cocky because Stacy tipped them off that the challenge was coming <laughs> yeah Stacy knew she found the list the uh creep list on the floor and she told them but I do have to defend Kelly a little bit this is a horribly embarrassing challenge that she does this for a living and she loses to a guy and it's like not even close but if you watch the challenge you can see why she loses and it's because she is a river rafting guide, and they do not have ocean currents on the river. Right at the beginning of the challenge, the ocean current and the waves push her off to the left. She does not have the upper body strength that Jervis does to fight the tide. And by the time she manages to steer back into the current, he's so far ahead of her, it's not even close. So in defense of Kelly, it seems like what she does for a living, but this is completely different out in the open ocean. And I feel bad that she had to do this on, to quote Sue, national TV. Well, yeah, and it's a river rafting guide, right? Like you're not yeah. sprinting down the river, right? Like there are times right. where you need to paddle hard, but like this is literally like just just get the get the boat moving as fast as you possibly can to a place. Yeah. And again, in her, her defense, Jervis only needed to paddle out to the first person, and then the other person, who I think was probably Greg or Joel, immediately becomes a second paddler, and that's a huge advantage. You have two guys against one smaller girl. So like all Jervis had to do was get to the first person, and now he has backup. Right, and it's also more of a test of upper body strength as well, where, like, you know, if you're able to just expend a lot of energy quickly, you're going to be able to do that. And maybe there was also stuff with, like, current going on as well. Yeah. But, yeah, Jervis gets off to an early lead, and it's 
not even close. But there's also a really fun moment where, in true Jervis fashion, like, as soon as it's over, he collapses in the sand in celebration. <laughs> While simultaneously mocking the other team and telling you, this is our island forever, you suck. Go, Marissa. <laughs> but yeah, this is a sad moment. You get a lot of sad music. Kelly crying on the beach with the sad piano music playing, and Sue has to come over and console her. And, and Kelly's like, yeah, great, great moment for me. Go, Kelly. And my wife was just walking by when she saw that. She's like, so this is the second time this season where someone says, go, Kelly, with no enthusiasm. Also, in her final jury speech where Colleen says, who says go, Kelly? Does anybody care about Kelly? So my wife was like, this is Kelly's story in a nutshell. Go, Kelly, said with no enthusiasm whatsoever. Oh, <laughs> this does feel this is a really sad moment, though, right? Because it like, is. Because, again, it's this idea of, like, you have the safety of your tribe on your shoulders, and she failed here. And that's got to be really tough. She knows that she's safe, but that almost makes it worse, right? Like, now she has to live with the guilt of it. Yeah, and she even said, leading up to that challenge, there's a lot of pressure on me. I feel kind of a little overwhelmed because, like, I can't lose this. If I lose this, it's all on me, and that's exactly what happens. And 10-year-old Paul, what did you think? Were you pro-Kelly here, or did you care? Um, I don't feel like I cared that much, and I'm just glad that, you know, Sue is so supportive in this moment, and Sue will continue to show that empathy um, <laughs> for Kelly f until the very last night they're all together. So I just want us to keep in mind about, you know, what a kind soul Sue is to her friend Kelly. <laughs> well, I, I know you're joking, and I get that, but sh Sue is very nice here. People forget that Sue could be nice at times, and one of the rare times is she consoles well, and, for Kelly. Yeah, yeah. and she, I mean, she is, it comes up later, you know, she is she is willing to do anything for Kelly. The reason she turns me on Kelly is because she feels totally burdened by her. But, you know, I mean, she really has Kelly's best interest at heart and really is her, her good friend. Yeah, let me um, actually segue into that by reading a section from Burnett's book that I thought was really interesting. Uh, so basically they had been talking about like, hey, you know, who should we get rid of? Kelly had come to rely on Susan for insights like that. It seemed as though Kelly suspended her own thought processes in Susan's company. Susan was so worldly and had such insight. Plus, it felt like home to have a dynamic maternal figure so close. Kelly was the product of a single-parent household. Her mother raised four girls while attending college, then graduate school, and finishing at the top of her class. When Kelly considered applying for Survivor, it was her mother who told her she was badass enough to win. The dilemma that Kelly, for Kelly on the island would be the same one Kelly faced in daily life, stepping out from under that maternal shadow. She was trying, but the process felt too daunting. It was much easier to channel that energy into rage and self-destruction. The massive tattoo on her lower back and the pierced tongue were signs of that. So already they were sort of like setting things up of the relationship between them about how it was sort of a, a mother-daughter thing and how Kelly is going to eventually make the move on Sue for a myriad of reasons. But one of them is, despite the care that she's shown for her, she wants to assert her independence. And ironically, when Sue comes over and consoles Kelly, she gives her a glass of water. <laughs> All right. yeah it's okay we'll talk more about kelly and sue let's finish this up here because this episode is kind of anticlimactic after this but yeah kelly also loses her chance to dog a guy on national tv we go back to toggy it's going to be sean or dirk because basically we have an alliance of three people and rudy doesn't really care about sean or dirk so it's going to be sean or dirk one or the other really is Sean just useless and lazy and negative or is Dirk too skinny and just doesn't fit in? And we go to tribal council. And the only thing that's really significant about the end of this episode is this is where probes first asks about alliances at tribal council mm -hmm. and rich quickly sidesteps that. 
to people for people who don't remember, Rich just says, well, I don't think there's alliances. There's a bunch of little alliances like me and Sue do things. Sean and I do things. Sean and Kelly do things. So there's lots of little alliances, but I think the bigger alliance is just these six of us on Toggy are working together. So <laughs> Rich is an accomplished bullshit artist. Right. And he's very much like, he'll talk about this later on. Like, I don't know exactly where, where all, I mean, alluded to in the show and stuff too, but this is like a moment for him that was kind of like, oh crap, Propes can be the 17th player here that I need to be. I, he says that he says somewhere that he didn't think that Probst would ever be that direct to ask him that. So it's kind of a wake up call for for uh, Richard that he needs to uh, kind of play Probst, um, you know, um, like like as if he's a player in the game. Yeah, right. And that's the thing as well is that they initially wanted Tribal Council to be a place where you can like express your true thoughts. And I think he realized that, like, no, this is still a part of the game that needs to be played. Like, I can't let anything down. You know, still play the game that they want to. Don't wear masks to tribal council. But at the same time, you don't need to be particularly honest completely with what you're being asked because people are still listening before they have to vote. And, of course, you can draw a wonderful parallel here between Richard and Sue, who I've always argued Sue is by far the most dominant player. But when it comes to being verbally dexterous, when probes ask them if they're alliance, Rich can go on for 10 minutes about alliances in the world and what they mean and what is what is the meaning of an alliance? What does a true alliance actually entail? And Sue will just say, no. <laughs> so drawing a nice little parallel between the two of them. But uh, yeah, so this is the, really the first meeting of the alliance. It, we're going to they're going to pile four votes on Dirk. And poor Sean is going to have no clue what's coming whatsoever. And this is really the first moment, although I do have to point out again, Sean being too nice. This is where I like to defend him a little bit, where he votes for Rudy. And he says, uh, you're not athletic, but you're still a, a very a phenomenal person. You're just a wonderful person, Rudy. I feel bad. So it's like Sean is a nice guy. He's over his head. The alliance is going to gang up on Dirk. And with that, we lose one of the more forgettable, but I would say maybe misunderstood a little players. Dirk he is the first victim of the Toggy Alliance. Well, I want to bring up actually what you just mentioned. Do you believe that Dirk's vote was like the first surprise vote for the people, for the person who was voted out of the season and therefore of Survivor? Um, Stacy knew she could get votes. Ramona knew she was probably a possibility. She thought maybe her bonds would stick with her a little closer. So, yeah, I'd agree with you. Dirk is probably the first vote where the person did not expect it at all. That'd be my, I, that's my interpretation. What do you guys think? Hashtag blindside. Yeah, I agree. What was that? Did you not hear me? <laughs> I your, heard your you. microphone's so quiet, Paul. We couldn't say, no, we got it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, I heard you. I just didn't get you. So what about you, Jay? Is that the first blindside in Survivor history? Um, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's tough because I think... I think there's a difference in a weird way. There's a difference between somebody not knowing that they were getting voted out and people saying we need to deceive them. Like, I don't know if anyone like purposely deceived Dirk, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. It's, but he, even in his final words, he seems a little broken. He's like, I expected I'd get a lot further than this. He seems a little surprised. Well, yeah, but but that doesn't mean that he was like, I was totally shocked by this vote, right? Yeah. Like, it seems like no one, because, you know, nowadays you, you do a lot of deflecting. Like, 
like what Richard does at Tribal Council. But, you know, you, you do things where, you know, you're like, OK, well, we're all going to vote for this person. Our rest of our alliance is going to vote for this person. But like if that person comes up to you, you're like, yeah, totally. I'm with you. I, I, we should do this. And then you come up with uh, schemes with them that you have no intention of doing. Whereas, you know, back in this day, it was basically like, well, sorry, we've got a voting block. You're voting out, you know, and it's people didn't have the. Uh, the tools to to flip the game and the concept of like flipping flipping votes is just not a thing yet. Yeah, it's in any case, it's a pivotal moment in Survivor history. It's the first really gangbang vote of an alliance going against somebody who really didn't know it was coming. And yeah, it's again, we don't we don't. Dirk is not a huge significant figure in Survivor history, but I do feel he's more prominent than people remember. He's very prominent in the first episode or two, and he kind of checks out. I guess maybe because of the Stacy incident. I don't know, but he's his clearly heart is not quite in it. And again, he's getting too skinny. They they can justify it. Oh, we, we're trying to protect him. He needs he needs food. He needs to get out of the game. It's unhealthy. So again, with that we lose Dirk. And from here on out we have the Toggy five. Again, it's the Toggy four plus Sean. Sean is very important for many reasons. We'll see why he influences the game later. But here on out, this is the Toggy that people remember after the Dirk vote. And Dirk turned off the podcast once you put him and the word gangbang in the same sentence. <laughs> I'm sorry. We got to keep it classy. He was with some lovely ladies and they were sharing an experience together simultaneously. Someone explain that to Paul. Anyway, so that's it. And I think I think we're going to wrap it up. I don't know if we wanted to do the Joel episode this late in the podcast. Are we good for part three for Joel here? Yeah, I mean, this it's a very big, big episode in, in a number of ways i mean jeff's gonna say at the very beginning of the episode like hey the the merger's coming up and that's gonna be like the first i think seismic shift in the game where people are going to start thinking ahead surprisingly so especially when it comes to pagong and once it really gets signaled with the gretchen vote like we have a very hefty few transitional episodes to get through until really the end game gets cemented yeah and again, once Gretchen goes and Jay for Jenna happens, it's kind of an autopilot until the end. So this will probably be a four-part podcast. I just want to uh, thank everyone for indulging us and letting us do Borneo here. And, and do you guys have anything more to add before we sign off here? No, I'm just excited that we're giving a lot of uh, attention to Borneo and definitely the opposite of the the first way we handled this. So hopefully we covered these last few episodes um, well, and I'm excited to, to talk about the next chunk of episodes. We'll, we'll probably get all the way to the final four next episode, you think, Mario? Mm. <laughs> yeah, what's sitting? Uh... No, I think we'll actually we'll get to episode two of Australia by the end of next episode. For people who don't know, they're making fun of me because I historically say, hey, let's do like six episodes on the next podcast and then we do two. So I am a historically terrible uh, estimator on how far we're going to get. So, yes, we will probably. <laughs> yeah, Sue Hawk. The, the, the behind the scenes that people don't know is that we discuss sort of like, you know, what do you think we're going to get to? You know, because we're, we're watching the episodes and making notes. Right. And we usually watch more than than we know we're going to get to. But Mario's always kind of like, you know, if we left off on episode two, Mario's like, I don't know, like eight, <laughs> you know, like 10. We're like sitting there going like, whoa, 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 we were thinking like five or six, you know, I am an optimist, Jay Fisher. That's what I do. I bring a bright ray of sunshine into the world. One might say I have a pocket full of sunshine. Yeah, so, oh, and in keeping with that, by the way, we again, we don't like dating these podcasts, so they are specific to a moment in time, but I do want to say we are about to do an AMA over on Reddit. I want to announce this because I know the rest of the guys here are excited about this too. 
that this Saturday, the 25th at, I believe, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, the four of us will be doing an AMA on Reddit. If you want to know anything about the historians, if you want to ask specific questions to Jay, Paul, Mike, you have questions about Montana, what rubber products Paul is allergic to, Jay and his voice that's like liquid sex. If you want to know anything about any of us, our back histories, the history of the show, anything, come on to Reddit, and we will be there, and we're looking forward to it. Is yeah. that it? You guys have anything else, Dad? No, I'm excited. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's fun. It's Again, I always say it. I, well, I don't always say it, but I've said it before in the sense that, like, the fact that people listen and 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 write in and and whatnot is astounding. Uh, and thank you so much, you know, because this is this is fun, you know, and I, I know that like sometimes professional athletes say something along the lines of, oh, I'd play this game for free if I could. And it's like, no, you wouldn't. You probably want to get paid millions of dollars to play this game. But, you know, if, if if the four of us just got together from time to time at the frequency that we do and just wanted to talk Survivor forever, I would I would do it in a heartbeat. Right. And I love doing this podcast with you guys. But the fact that it is recorded and it is put out there and that so many of you guys listen to it and have a response to it and mostly like it. It's, it's just, it's astounding to me, but also so wonderful. So just thank you all again. Agreed. And I, I think that, again, I will state what I did at the end of the last podcast. I've had so much fun watching these Borneo episodes too, just because it's such a, a both like a re-exploration of a time castle capsule, but also viewing it in such a different light, again, being only 10 years old when I first watched this season and now looking at it through the lens of being 30, there is so much I didn't notice the first time or that I didn't remember or that I do remember, but maybe remember a bit differently. So, again, if you have some spare time for some reason, I would heavily, heavily encourage you to watch Survivor Borneo because it is so interesting and compelling in its own way. And as always, keep it in the lens of when it aired and what the reaction to it was, because you cannot watch it from a 2020 lens and really understand why things were significant. It's just very important to keep that in mind, specifically for this season. And with that, I believe we are going to sign off. And again, I don't normally say this, but I had a couple people email me about our last podcast saying they really liked how... I told everyone, you know, to stay safe during the quarantine. We're thinking about you guys. I will say it again. We really love our listeners. Please stay safe, and we will be here giving you guys content in the future. Do your best to get through this. We'll all be through it together. And with that, I'm going to sign off. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher. I'm Mike Bloom. I'm Paul Ostelson. And we will talk to you guys later soon for Episode 6 through 27 of Borneo. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. I'm thinking the other team's going to have a guy throwing the spear. So if there is, it's a good chance that I can dog some guy on national TV. Oh. No matter who they put up, you got it. Even if we lost and I at least dogged the guy on the spear throw and they'd be happy.